Yeah, um, you were mentioning that pillow earlier, and I know that there's this thing now with, like, anime where people actually have those pillows, <laughs> and that's what it made me think of. <laughs> but they sell them at my local game store, which is, like, bizarre. I asked about them, and I was like, ooh, this is kind of strange. I, I don't know. It's not my thing. But, uh, I mean, I can't say anything. I have an Elvira mouse pad with boobs, so uh, there you go. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. My kids love to touch the gel boobs, see. <laughs> I really should have seen that coming, that we were going to get into anime body pillows. I can't believe I didn't see that you coming, dude. Thank you. Thank you. You've known the thank you seven years and you haven't out. figured that out yet? You know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Gregos81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. This month, we're looking at an almost completely ignored strategy RPG on the Sony PlayStation. You may only know Eternal Eyes from its horrendous North American cover art, but we endeavored to actually play the game that most people passed by due to said cover art or its very poor critical reception. Were we rewarded for giving it a shot? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at RFG Playcast, and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast.
All right, man, exciting day to record. It's Easter. I've got my coffee makes me poop coffee cup that my wife bought me with a fresh hot cup of joe. Excellent. Made from my new coffee maker, the Technivorm Mocha Master that we uh <laughs> that we upgraded and bought with our stimulus check. Mhm. Yeah. So my wife and I are big into coffee. It's our one luxury that we share and we ended up spending some money on a very nice coffee maker that gets the water to the exact temperature where it does not burn the coffee and makes it as flavorful as possible. Since now, Sean, we both drink black coffee. Uh-huh. I've persuaded you. You know, we didn't have cream in the Gulf War. That's why I drink it black. That's right. No cream in the <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Uh, it's just better for you and good for you, man. Yeah, I am a coffee, I don't want to say addict because I don't take that word lightly, but I... Eh, I it doesn't have a negative connotation, <laughs> but I'll accept it. Yeah, like I drink tons and tons of coffee, but I'm not actually a coffee snob. So long as it is black and strong, I don't like coffee that tastes dirty. It's very hard to explain. <laughs> if you buy really, really cheap coffee, it can taste like dirt or look like sawdust. I do like to grind my own beans, yes. but that's about as snooty as I get. Yeah, I'm not snooty either, but I will say... This coffee maker is a game changer. You should look at some <laughs> reviews of it online. And if you don't have any plans for your stimulus check, I might have to make this recommendation to you and your wife if she's a big coffee drinker as well. It was recommended to me by a dude I went to high school with and not someone I expected at all to be a coffee connoisseur. And I wouldn't call myself that. He wouldn't call himself that. It's just that we enjoy good coffee and it's something we do on a daily basis, you know? So if it's something you do on a daily basis, you should invest in that, you know, and enjoy it, much like a bidet. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very similar. Uh, so what are you doing with your stimulus check? Any plans? Well, that's quite a personal... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so actually, I recently purchased a new vehicle, so I haven't talked about cars in a long time. I remember talking about a Honda Civic I bought a few years ago from a coworker because I actually bought a version of Need for Speed that had that car in it. So it was like <laughs> yeah. video game related. But I actually didn't keep that Honda Civic for very long because I kept having issues. So I actually sold it to the repair shop owner because he really liked the car. And I bought another car from another coworker about a year ago as a BMW. And I'm a fan of BMWs, oh, but there's a coworker of mine who knows a lot about cars told me a saying, which couldn't be more true in my experience. He said, there's no car more expensive than a cheap BMW. Yes. And Nothing went wrong with the car that I didn't know about. For example, when I bought the car, the power steering pump was having issues and I knew about that, but it cost an absolute fortune to have it fixed. Yeah. There were a couple other things like that. The straw that broke the camel's back was I got a really bad flat tire that could not be repaired. The tire cost 430 dollars to be <laughs> replaced. One tire. 
And I said, I'm getting rid of this car. I'll never, <laughs> I'll never be able to retire if I keep putting money into this car. Yeah, I heard the same thing. A friend of mine bought his wife a BMW. It was an SUV and they had it less than a year. And I asked him, I said, why did you get rid of that car? He said, dude, we went to go get new tires. He's like, it was a fortune plus just the maintenance costs of working on a foreign car, especially a BMW is astronomical. I would love to have a BMW. It's sort of my dream car once the kids are out of college. And I've never owned a new car, and I doubt I would even own a new one if I bought it. But I would want something with very low mileage on it from a reputable place that I could trust. And I would have a mechanic go out and look at it before I purchased it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, what I did with part of my stimulus check, or however you want to put it, is uh, I went and traded the Beamer in for a 2014 Toyota Corolla. Nice. So I said, yeah, I want the most reliable, easy to maintain. I don't care. It doesn't even have as much get up as my Pontiac that I drive. It really is just a commuter car. It is the most no frills car I've ever had. And I absolutely love it. And I am confident that I made a good decision <laughs> because it's exactly what I wanted. So yeah, that's the story so far of my stimulus money. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. About three years ago, I bought an Acura I bought it used. It had 4,000 miles on it, and it was three years old as well. It was like a fleet car at a company. So, yeah, it was basically brand new, but I got it for a steal. And Acura is basically a more luxurious Honda, and mm. it's made by the same company. And Hondas are super reliable cars. My wife and I have had several Hondas uh, throughout our lives and have loved them. So, uh, you know, it was kind of a no brainer, especially at the price I got it for. It was a complete steal and, and it looked brand new and it has some pretty awesome road power, too. So I'm really, really pleased with it. And I think my next car will probably be the same thing. Well, speaking of awesome power, <laughs> have you seen Godzilla versus Kong? I have not. My neighbor saw it the other night and was talking to me about it. I know you were kind of on the fence about this film, so I'm curious to hear if you saw it and what you thought about it. Yeah, so I wanted to just talk about it, however, briefly, just because it's really in the consciousness more than I thought it would be right now. And I think it's just because it's one of the first like blockbusters to come along in the spring season mm -hmm. that we're in right now. So there's a lot of buzz about it on the internet. All the YouTube reviews popped up at the same time. And if you have HBO, it's on HBO Max on demand. So it's pretty easy to access even if you're not comfortable or not available to go to a movie theater right now. So for me, I really disliked the 2014 Godzilla, the first Godzilla movie. There were some really cool moments in it, but in general, it, I didn't think it was a good movie at all. The second one, Godzilla King of the Monsters, I liked a lot more. They learned from the criticisms of the first movie. Nothing that they can make in America of Godzilla will ever compare to the Japanese movies for me. That's yeah. just the way I am. And I, I'm just a purist in that way. There's something culturally that can't translate over to an American version of that. So I go into these with just a grain of salt 
in that way that I just have to tell myself this isn't the Toho Japanese Godzilla. <laughs> it's an American production. Just deal with it. And my wife really, really wanted to see this movie and was excited about it. So I felt I needed to kind of appreciate that because it's not often that we overlap in that way. She doesn't really love Godzilla movies. I've made her watch her share of them. And, you know, she <laughs> she's not as big of a fan as I am. Let's just say that. So anyway, this Godzilla versus Kong was decent. I mean, I would put it on the same level as King of the Monsters, the second movie there in the American trilogy. And I call it a trilogy because there's three of Godzilla. I've never seen the King Kong movie. So this is my first I'm seeing of Kong. I think he's a little too, like, what's the word? Anthropomorphized. He's like this super sympathetic character. And me being an animal lover and my wife being an animal lover, they put him in a lot of situations that make you want to go, aw, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) and... In general, that part of it wasn't too bad. The human characters are just their fulfiller. Yeah. This whole thing is just a CG, you know, extravaganza. You're basically watching a two hour long video game cutscene, which it's fine, you know? So <laughs> I would recommend it. People who like this series will definitely like this movie. And there are some really cool moments overall and, you know, just decent for something coming out of America. Yeah. Plus, there's a little True Blood Scars Guard for the ladies. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a beautiful man. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I are both fans of his. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, my neighbor wasn't very favorable of the film, but it's good to hear that um, you thought it was a pretty decent film. I know you have a very high opinion of the Godzilla films. You're right. Nothing can beat the originals. Because I think that the originals had a very specific time and place historically as far as the nuclear bomb. It's just like the monster films of the 1950s, the sci-fi ones that were produced here in the U.S. A lot of them were based on the H-bomb and you know radioactive situations that they weren't extremely familiar with at the time. And it just seemed to work in that period of time where I feel like if it were modernized, they really wouldn't work today. So it's good to hear that maybe they're trying to go a different route with that. And, uh, you know, these types of films will survive because I do like the big kaiju monster films. They're a lot of fun. I watched a lot of Ultraman growing up. So, uh, yeah, something my kids even enjoyed these days. Awesome. Well, speaking of your neighbor, do we have any mistakes? that are <laughs> 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 friends? I thought you were going to call my kids. Yeah, I didn't want to go that way, (laughs) but I needed something to transition on. (laughs) Oh, yeah, man. We had one extreme screw up and I'm going to partially blame you for this screw up. Okay, lay it on me. (laughs) So the episode hasn't been out, but for a few days, Uh, this was a late release. So I've only gotten to listen to it a few times and was even listening to it this morning to try to find some mistakes or at least do some fact checking, you know? And after I put the episode out, I realized I used the song Betty Davis Eyes at the beginning of it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was supposed to use that for the Eternal Eyes episode. And I totally lost track of what episode I was working on. It sounds good. Yeah, no, it was fine. (laughs) If listeners don't know, what happens is when we finish recording an episode 
we talk about the music and we always want to put a little bit of music that's either related to the context of the game we're reviewing in the show or songs or bands we talked about in our concert cast segment. So as usual, you send me a list right after we're done recording and I was going through that and you had put some suggestions for the Eternal Eyes episode at the beginning and then suggestions for our latest episode at the bottom of it. And so I saw that at the top and I always keep a little notepad on my phone where I'm always putting down ideas and as I'm editing, I'll put where there's maybe a good place to have an intro, timestamp that and put a little mm-hmm. description so that I can choose, you know, what I want to use later when I'm editing that portion. But I put down Betty Davis eyes, you know, after I saw that you had that list. And I think that kind of got twisted around in my head somehow. So this is just my sort of way of blaming you for that screw up. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And the music choices are always really meta. It's just a song and it's a good song. So it's fine. But we, we like the songs to kind of have a meta contextual relationship like you were saying to either the game or the concert cast so yeah i thought it was kind of funny and when the song started playing i was like what the hell (laughs) (laughs) so why did he use this song (laughs) what is this about (laughs) that's great so that's funny and then the second thing was that i accidentally left the word hole in the whole segment of the show. <laughs> Speaking of meta. Uh, so I apologize to anyone with young kids who had to hear that word and also to other people who are offended by the word hole. We're allowed to say ass on the show, but we can't say hole for some reason. That's just how it is. But regardless, uh, apologies for leaving that in there. And I'll try to do a better job as I edit. That's it for me. Did you have any mistakes that you wanted to talk about? Uh, Nothing big. I misspoke on a couple occasions, but nothing too critical. I also want to shout out Adam for just letting us know that our hunch about there not being yet a physical copy of Cuphead is true. There is a code in the box kind of situation with some artwork, but apparently the scuttlebutt is that there was supposed to be a game of the year type thing that will get a physical release. It just hasn't come out yet due to the pandemic. So that's correct. That's where we're at. So Cuphead, when it comes out physical, like you were saying in the last episode, it will almost guaranteed do gangbusters yeah. because people have been clamoring for a physical copy of that game for as long as it's been out. So I hope you guys end up getting it. Oh, if it comes out, our family is definitely getting it, no doubt. Kids are still obsessed with that game. Such a great game. And I hope that there is a copy of the soundtrack in there somehow, because that game has one of the best original soundtracks ever. So, speaking of music, Sean, should we move into the concert cast? Yeah, absolutely.
So this was a category of your choosing, but I was very excited about it because it's a genre that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the soul songs of the 60s. Now, I want to make a little bit of a caveat because when you posed this to me, you said soul, and I said, well, what makes soul different from R&B or Motown or any of the other things that I would typically think of when I think of the music of the 1960s? in this vein. So I actually did a little bit of research and I asked a few people. I want to shout out my coworker Angela, who is a big fan of R&B. And I asked her, what's the difference between soul music and R&B music? And she said, I don't think anything. So I was like, okay, cool. So I asked my wife and she just grabbed her phone and kind of Googled it. And she said, soul is a subgenre of R&B. And I was like, okay, that's good enough for me. So we <laughs> we started this question out as soul, but I'm calling it soul slash R&B. It's funny because some songs are more soulful than others, so that kind of made me think in certain ways. For example, I made a playlist with a bunch of my favorite songs in this broader genre from the 60s, and a song like uh, Why Do Fools Fall in Love by Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers didn't make my list because I thought... As soulful as a song is, it's more of a pop R&B, like doo-woppy kind of song. So I really tried to stay with the more soulful and gospel-inspired songs. So okay. I did my best in that regard, but I think both of us will have pretty great lists here. So we're doing a top 10 as well. We normally do top fives or top three or whatever, but you went with top 10 and I, yeah, I accept your list, challenge. <laughs> Um, with certain events in my life, I always gravitate toward music. And during times where I have this sort of downtime, I look for things that I'm not very familiar with that I want to learn more about or listen to more music in. And of course, 60s R&B and soul is music that I grew up with. My grandmother had one of those record players that was that one piece of furniture, you know what I'm talking about, with the speakers and oh, yeah. you open the lid, you put the record inside. And my mom and her sister collected records as they were growing up, uh, the little 45s. And I still have all those 45s of theirs. And my grandmother would put those on and we would dance around, you know, when I was a little kid. And this was the primary music that we listened to. Now, whether my list is R&B or soul, some people may argue, but this is what I consider R&B and soul. And with the pandemic, it's something I focused my listening back onto. Just really been getting into it a lot lately and uh, kind of started with 70s, but migrated back even to the 60s. You know, it's funny, like we always hate on our parents' music as we're growing up. We think that our music is the best and coolest. But I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that even older music has its place and it's something that I really enjoy. So, um, yeah, this was a fun list for me to put together. I hope everyone enjoys these picks. So, uh, Sean, you want to start us off? Sure. So my number 10 is Chain Gang by Sam Cooke. I love this song. It's just a, a song about prisoners on a chain gang. And I, it's funny. I have a funny memory of this song. I don't know how, but when I was in grade school, I don't know if it was elementary school or junior high, this song somehow got popular amongst my peer group. And they used to sing on the school bus and they would like do a call and response thing. I'm, I kid you not. 
it was like an inside joke with everybody where somebody on the bus would go, that's the sound of the men. <laughs> and then and the, and the rest of the bus would jump in, working on the chain gang. So anyway, there you got me singing again. It won't be the last time, I don't think, on this list. But anyway, that's, that's just a great song. It's got a great rhythm, great story, a lot of soul to the vocals. So Chain Gang from 1960. Very cool. A little bit disturbing, uh, considering the content of the song and the meaning of the lyrics right. that your bus is singing it. But, you know, at the same time, you know, you get one of those earworms and you just can't help it. And that's the cool thing about music is sometimes the most serious songs can just come off as, you know, fun and joyful. So yeah, that's a great example of that. Speaking of fun and joyful songs, number 10 for me is Your Love Lifts Me by Jackie Wilson from 1967. Nice. It was uh, featured in Ghostbusters 2. It made a toaster dance. And I go back to Jackie Wilson because there's the song The Night Shift by the Commodores, and they mention Jackie in that, and they're talking about Jackie Wilson. It was based on Marvin Gaye's death, but they do mention Jackie in that too and how Marvin Gaye and Jackie are... Working on the night shift, you know, playing their songs together in heaven, which is really cool. And I just think this is a really fun and beautiful song. And Jackie Wilson just completely belts this song out. So, uh, yeah, it's my number 10, man. Awesome. Almost made my list. So consider that one of my honorable mentions. Uh, My number nine is When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes by the Supremes. Uh, This was an early minor hit from the Supremes from 1962. It is a very powerful instrumental, and the arrangement of the song has this ascending and descending kind of quality to it that I really love. Just like Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher, you want the music to kind of literally lift your spirits higher. And this one really does that. It's super powerful. And if you're not familiar with some of the Supremes, like deeper cuts, you could definitely start here. It's an amazing song. Very cool, man. All right. One of my favorite duets of all time. I just mentioned Marvin Gaye and Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell in 1968 did a song called You're All I Need to Get By. Man, I love the song. I love the way they sing together. They sound so great. I love the way they sing over top of each other and how the music just overlaps. What a beautiful song. Has a great theme. Two people who are in love and all they need is each other. And man, just a really, really cool song. Would have been a great one to play at my wedding. All right. What do you have for your number eight, Sean? Uh, My number eight is Nothing But a Heartache by The Flirtations from 1969. This is a really bombastic song. I don't know too much about the group themselves this might have been a one-hit wonder kind of situation and you will hear this on oldies radio a lot what's amazing about this song is it just rocks it really rocks the bass and drums on this song are out of control and it's way ahead of its time from a production standpoint and just great great soulful belted out vocals i love this song all right for my number eight i'm going with But It's All Right by J.J. Jackson from 1967. I just think this is one of the more soulful, popular songs. It's a lot of fun. Mm. Great, great song. Very, very soulful and catchy. 
I don't know that J.J. Jackson really had any other hits. I could be wrong about that. But this 1967 song is quite a banger. Awesome. So my number seven is Oh No, Not My Baby by Maxine Brown from 1965. I love this song because it kind of tells a story. And it's about this woman who's in denial that her man is cheating on her. And there's some really great lyrics in this song. She says... My mother told me when rumors spread, there's truth somewhere and I should use my head. I love that line. And then by the end of the song, she's saying, well, you might have had a last minute fling, but I'm sure it didn't mean a thing. (laughs) So it's just such a heartbreaking song about denial and dependence on another person. And it's just a great ballad and a classic song. So that's my number seven. Awesome. All right, my number seven is I Want You Back by the Jackson 5, 1969. Oh, baby, give me one more chance to show you I love you. (laughs) (laughs) These guys were just kids at the time, you know, and I always think it's so funny to hear kids singing love songs. New Edition had a lot of songs when they were younger about relationships like Mr. Telephone Man and stuff like that. And there was a group, I want to say it was in the late 80s, early 90s, called Another Bad Creation that had the song At the Playground. Do you remember that one? No, I don't remember (laughs) that, but I remember it being, wasn't it in that movie, Dick, the movie that was about Richard Nixon? I don't know. It could have been. I didn't see that one. Yeah, I'm sure it's in a million different movies. I just happen (laughs) to remember that one specifically. Cool. But uh, yeah, man, I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. That's one when it comes on my Alexa playlist. I am dancing around the kitchen, man, cooking some omelets, too. (laughs) It is fantastic. Just so high energy and fun, man. Awesome. Uh, I think we're on number six. So my number six is Come and Get These Memories by Martha and the Vandellas from 1963. I love Martha and the Vandellas. Uh, My second choice would have been Jimmy Mac, but I think Come and Get These Memories kind of edges it out a little, even though the the lyrics are kind of bubblegummy. She says, here's your teddy bear that you won for me at the state fair. It's basically she's giving back all these things to this guy that she broke up with. And she's just saying, come and get these memories because they remind me of you and... I'm with someone new and it's just such a good song. And the vocal melody has this like really flowing, almost like scooping sound. It has this just slithery kind of quality of it. And I, I, oh, I love this song. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right, man. My number six, Sean, set me free. Why don't you, babe? Because it's another song by the Supremes called You Keep Me Hanging On. I love, love, love this song. Probably a runner-up if I had to pick another Supreme song would be Love Child. I think that's just such a really good song, too. But You Keep Me Hanging On is just so much fun. It's so energetic. And I know that our good friend Chris from the Collector Cast is going to be so happy that we've got two Supreme songs on this list. There you go. But you can't do any better than Diana Ross and the Supremes, man. So, uh, yeah, that's my number six pick. 
Cool. My number five, this is the only one where there's kind of a risk of overlap on our list because I know you're fans of these guys. So my number five is the Tracks of My Tears by The Miracles. Oh, yep. That's on my list, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I had a feeling you would pick this. I was going to go with the uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips version, but I didn't want to pick what I see as not as good of a version just to pick it. So anyway, this song from 1965... A great song about just hiding your sadness, you know, after a breakup, Uh, a great breakup song. And I'll let you talk more about it when you get to it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll go ahead and put it at my number five. It was listed as my number four. But just to continue talking about this song, man, Smokey Robinson's voice is great. I mean, you know, Tears of a Clown is just sort of campy. I don't really like the beat, but man, Tracks of My Tears is just so soulful like you said, it's cool to hear a song by a dude who's talking about crying and, you know, that it's okay to be a dude and cry. There's a song by, I believe it's The Temptations, called I Wish It Would Rain, which is the same thing. That's a killer song, too, and that would be an honorable mention for me. But, man, you can't do any better than Tracks in My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. If you're not belting out that chorus every time it comes on, (laughs) something's wrong with you, man. (laughs) All right, so let's go ahead and go with your next one. Let's go with your number four. All right, so my number four is He's Got the Power by The Exciters from 1963. So The Exciters are kind of a lesser-known band. They're actually from New York. They might get lumped in in some people's minds with Motown, but they're actually from New York, and they are best known for their hit, Tell Him. But He's Got the Power is... In my opinion, a better song than Tell Him, and the lyrics are more provocative. The lead singer, Brenda Reed, has an amazing voice. The first line of the song is, he makes me do things I don't want to do. And I just love that. It's it's just very provocative, and it's, it's a great song. Oddly enough, the version of the song that I was most familiar with was from that girl group Sounds Lost and Found box set that I talked about in a previous episode, which actually quite a few of the songs on this list come from, where there's this refrain in the song. They go, yeah, 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 yeah. They just say, yeah, 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 really loud. And the song starts with that in the version that I like. But if you look it up on Spotify, it just kind of starts very calmly in comparison. So it's kind of a bummer that if you look this song up on Spotify, there's a few different versions, but they're all this version that doesn't have the yeah, yeah, yeahs in the front. Anyway, that's just a weird editorializing on my part. <laughs> I, I got to find the version that was on that box set because it just smacks you in the face when it starts. Awesome underrated group, the Exciters. Very cool, man. All right. Well, my number four, which was actually my number five before you did Tracks of My Tears, <laughs> is a song titled Gimme Little Sign. And that is the name of it, much like Chippendale Rescue Rangers. (laughs) Everyone wants to call it Give Me a Little Sign, but it's by Brenton Wood from 1966. Just give me a little sign, girl. Oh, my baby. I love this song, man. Really fun and energetic song. Once again, just one that my wife and I are bumping asses around the kitchen to. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, great one, man. Nice. All right. We're getting into the top three. Here we go. My number three is Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops from 1966. All right. So this one is probably the most well-known song. It might even, it's like, it's super, super played 
and I don't want to say played out or overplayed, but if you turn on oldies radio, you're going to hear this song within like the first three songs. Everybody knows it. Everybody likes it, loves it, whatever. What struck me about this and why it's so important to have on my list is I think this is the most soulful song on my list in the sense that whoever wrote the words, they're actually almost religious sounding. And the gospel influences on the background vocals when they're saying, reach out, reach out for me, reach out. Like again, that ascending, uplifting quality to the music, the crescendos. And again, the lyrics could almost be a gospel song. When you feel like you can't go on, when you feel like your hope is gone and your whole world is filled with confusion, reach out, reach out for me, I'll be there. Like it's a love song, but certain lines could be from God, basically. So I really like that quality to it. Yeah, you could definitely hear the song sung by a church choir, no doubt. Yeah. Very good. Nice pick, man. All right, getting down to the nitty gritty here. It was hard to choose between my top three, but here goes. This one was originally number one on my list uh, when I started making it. In the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett in 1965. Mm. Oh, man. When my love comes tumbling down, love me some Wilson Pickett. Someone who just sings with um, everything inside of him. This is uh, one of those great, great songs of the 60s. Middle of the 60s, actually, I found most of my list from basically mid to late 60s. Not a lot from up front, except my number one is an early 60s song. But uh, yeah, Love in the Midnight Hour. I believe Mustang Sally was a Wilson Pickett song, which is another good one. But um, yeah, this made number three on my list. Awesome. All right, let's go on to my number two here. So I've got kind of an odd one, and I Again, discovered this song from that girl group sound box set, but I just really love this song. It's called Mixed Up Shook Up Girl by Patty and the Emblems from 1964. This is a bit of a one-hit wonder. They, as far as I can tell, don't have too much output. They had this one single called Mixed Up Shook Up Girl, and Patty Russell, the lead singer, didn't stay in the music industry at all, even though some of the members of the group did. Uh, But another great (laughs) breakup song, a lot of these are just breakup songs, but she's saying the relationship wasn't that great. So I'm kind of mixed up about how I feel about it. Am I crying because you left me or am I glad that you're gone? It's a cool song, cool lyrics. And I just really love the live version that's on the box set or the studio version. They're both really great and a totally underrated song and definitely worth checking out. Very cool. I have not heard that song and I can't wait to check it out. I'm sure it will be in your list. Just don't put any songs about transistors. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. So my number two pick is from my number one artist of the time, actually. You know, I was really stuck on two songs for this guy because there's one that my grandmother and I used to dance to all the time. And I love it. And it's my wife's favorite song by this person. It did make my honorable mentions, but... For me, as far as soulful and R&B, the song That's How Strong My Love Is by Otis Redding is probably one of the most incredible soul songs ever. I love Otis. You can't go wrong with buying an Otis Greatest Of album. Mm -hmm. If you're 
any way interested in 60s soul, get an Otis Redding album. He is just the icon and definition of R&B soul of that era. And that's how strong my love is. It's just, just one of these beautiful, beautiful songs about someone's affection for another. And it, it just puts me in that mood, man. It's not like a big dance song, but it's a, definitely a sway song. You're going to sway to it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's my number two pick. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm down to my number one here. This is one of the most legendary artists who ever lived. I could have picked from many of her great songs and her amazing catalog. But my number one song is Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, the Nina Simone version from 1964 from her album Broadway Blues Ballads. Uh, this was written by Benny Benjamin Horace Ott and Sol Marcus for Nina Simone. So she was the first that I can tell to record it, although it is known for the animals, right? many covers. Yeah, the animals being one. And I like the animals version. Animals yes. are The animals are one of the few British invasion bands that I actually still like. Mm-hmm. But the Nina Simone version of this song is so in my heart, I can listen to this song on a repeat over and over and over again. And it leads off this album. It's a pretty decent album. It's not my favorite Nina Simone album, but it's mm-hmm. not the worst place to start if you've never heard her music because this song kicks off that album and you'll just see what I mean, how amazing it is. Even if you're familiar with the song via the Animals version, this is totally different. She comes in with this just quiet piano and singing, and her voice is so unique in ways that if you've never heard it, you can't even understand. Uh, Absolutely. She just kind of (laughs) soulfully goes through this story again of just, it's not a story as in it's not a narrative, but it's a song about how life can stress you out, and sometimes you can take that out on your loved ones. What a simple concept, what a universal concept, and just such a great song. There are some particular moments in this song that always get me every time and kind of give me chills. When she gets to the, if I seem edgy, I want you to know I never mean to take it out on you. I don't know why, but when she sings, if I seem edgy, I can feel her kind of looking into my eyes at the start of that section of the song. And it's really hard to explain, but I can just feel her (laughs) staring into my eyes when she (laughs) sings that particular part. And then towards the end of the song, when the emotions are getting higher, she delivers the good. She said, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. And I love that part. (laughs) This song is just mind-blowingly good. In making this list, and I had my little playlist of all the songs on this list and many others that didn't make the cut, I must have listened to Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood 75 times. Every time I bring up Spotify, I'd start with that. And uh, one of my favorite songs of all time. Very nice, man. And uh, born and raised in North Carolina, actually. Yeah, there's a really good movie about her uh, documentary that came out a few years ago. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember really liking it. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, man. I mean, just if you've never heard her voice before, it is haunting. That's the best way that I could describe it. This is sort of a low baritone voice and a little gravelly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Great pick, man. Awesome. All right, what's your top pick? 
Oh, man. Well, this is my number one pick, and my list is over. And Sean, don't it make you feel like crying? (laughs) Solomon Burke's Cry to Me from 1962 is my number one pick. Soulful? Man, this song is the definition of soulful. Just that chorus, don't you feel like crying? I mean, him belting that out is just, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. After I put my list together, my father-in-law was here the other day, and he's really, really big in the 50s and 60s music. And I was talking about my list, and I asked him if he had any suggestions, you know, songs that I can consider. And... I was rattling off my list to him, and I said, Cry to Me by Solomon Burke. He's like, you know, what song is that? How does that sound? And then, uh, you know, I played it for him. He's like, oh, my gosh, yes. And he and his buddies have corresponding playlists that they send each other songs. Hey, I'm putting this on my playlist. You need to add this to yours and that sort of thing. And so he said, I'm adding this to mine. So I made my father-in-law who is way in the 50s and 60s music, add this song to his playlist. So that was a huge compliment to me. And I just think this song is just the epitome of R&B and soul of the 1960s. From 1962, Solomon Burke's Cry to Me is my number one overall pick. That is awesome. I may have to listen to that one to refresh my memory on what song it is. Absolutely, man. If you've ever seen Dirty Dancing, I do believe it's in there, which a lot of my songs and honorable mentions happen to be from that movie, so it's kind of funny. (laughs) Nice. All right, well, let's get into honorable mentions. What do you got? All right, so I spoke about Otis Redding earlier, and I was conflicted between two songs, but my other favorite and possibly my favorite song by Otis Redding is Love Man from 1969. Once again, another song that's in the movie Dirty Dancing, but this is a song that my grandmother and I used to dance to all the time, and so it has a special place in my heart. I love this song, and it's my wife's favorite Otis Redding song as well. Speaking of my grandmother, another song that we used to boogie to all the time was Walkin' the Dog by Rufus Thomas. I think it's one of the lesser-known songs that was put out by Stax probably a lesser-known soul R&B artist, but if you've never listened to Rufus Thomas, highly suggest check him out. Up on the Roof by The Drifters. The Drifters had a ton of great songs, but uh, I think Up on the Roof is just one of the coolest songs ever. Like, you can find me up on the roof, chilling out, looking out over the city at the stars with my girl. Just a beautiful song, you know, with a great message. And then finally, the song Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. Also a song from Dirty Dancing. Won't you stay just a little bit longer? Such a great, great song. And my last honorable mention. So how about you, Sean? What do you have? Nice. I just want to say, when I lived in New Jersey, we had a minor league baseball team. And anytime someone hit a foul ball over the stands, they would play up on the roof. And it was kind of fun. Very nice. Um <laughs> Again, I had a like foolish little girl by the Shirelles, but it, I thought that was more of a pop song. I think it's soulful, but it's more of a bubblegum pop kind of song. I would say a few other like Nina Simone songs, basically Don't Pay Them No Mind, uh, anything off the album Silk and Soul from 1967, just uh, anything by her, basically. And I think I had one more. I, I would say Tears of a Clown. You kind of 
threw shade on Tears of a Clown, but I love that. I still like that it. hooky whistle <laughs> riff at the beginning or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so stupidly catchy, though. You can't deny it is. that. You're right. But yeah, that's about it. Like I said, you can kind of latch on to your artists. Like, again, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas had so many good songs. And, that you know, they're known for songs like Heat Wave or Dancing in the Streets. But it's really yeah. worth going kind of deeper into their catalog because even their minor hits or deeper cuts are worth a listen yeah it's interesting man i had a lot of fun making this list but i sent you a message and i had a little bit of difficulty as well so i sort of had the love hate with this month's concert cast and my difficulty was that i felt like i didn't have enough female artists on my list Hmm. and the other night my neighbor Game Ruler's No Account Dad <laughs> came over, and I had a bonfire going in my backyard. He and I just sat around together, just the two of us, drinking some beers and, you know, listening to music and uh, told him what our next concert cast was going to be. And I told him about this conundrum that I had, that I didn't have enough women on my list. And it's something that always concerns me now when we make these lists. It's always in the back of my head. But in all fairness, this is a list of not the best soul and R&B songs of the 60s, but our favorites, right? Yeah. So I don't feel as bad. I did only have two females on my list, but we started talking about the era of the 60s and a lot of the music that came out at that time. And if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of girl groups put together by Phil Spector that was really big at the time. And a lot of the music that was put out by women was written by men. And... A lot of the songs are about my man's leaving me, what I'm going to do. I need to, you know, chase him down and get him back again and that sort of thing. You know, until you hit Aretha Franklin's respect, you just didn't have a lot of songs that were female centric. I listen to some of these girl group songs and they just sound dead inside. It's like they have no soul, which is ironic. But then I listen to the men sing some of the songs and they're just really belting it out. It was just an interesting thing that we talked about. And if if you go back and listen to a lot of the female songs from that era, they're just, you know, will he still love me tomorrow? It's all about him, him, him. And because a lot of these songs were written by men, that's the perspective you get. And it wasn't really until later when you had artists like Tina Turner, who were just belting out stuff in the 70s, is when... I really started enjoying female vocalists a lot more and really attaching myself more to their lyrics and their style. So it's an interesting lesson in history that kind of goes along with the music. And so I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, I do kind of get what you're saying. I want to push back a little. I mean, my list, I think, is kind of an ex- <laughs> like a counterexample to what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing <laughs> your list or anybody's list and how anybody feels about this music and how it makes them feel. But when I listen to it, a lot of the songs, especially the ones that were very popular at the time, I think your list is good because a lot of the songs that you have, I haven't heard of, and the way you describe them sound extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think some of the pop songs that made the radio were a little flat and a little dead inside. I agree. I'll give you an example. I think if you look at a song like My Boyfriend's Back, I think that's a song that's just like a a pop song with no soul to it. Absolutely. But 
to push back on Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, there's Shirelle's version of that song is one of the greatest songs ever recorded. And it was written by Carol King. So Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that is a good song. And, you know, uh, possibly I misspoke, but I, I guess I mean sort of the theme of the song. Yeah, no, I gotcha. I gotcha. But overall, man, as much difficulty as I had with this list, this was probably my favorite list to put together. I really love tracking back and listening to a lot of these songs, having all the time to listen and pay attention to these songs during the pandemic. And I've started collecting more vinyl from this era. It's just been a really, really awesome experience. And so I really appreciate you sharing your picks with me and allowing me to choose this month's theme for the concert cast. It was my pleasure. Speaking of pleasure or displeasure, how about we get into some news, Sean? Very good. So the only news item I wanted to talk about, and this is only because it's something we talk about a lot on this show, which is digital versus physical. There's constantly news coming out about it. In this instance, it's that Sony announced that they are going to be shutting down the PlayStation Store on the PSP, PS3, and Vita. So, yeah, very shortly you won't be able to buy games digitally on those platforms. The Vita is actually especially controversial because there are still being games developed for that platform. So you could make the case that PS3 and especially the PSP, it's not a very big deal that they're shutting down the stores. But for the Vita, it's a little weird. Well, it's not weird. You know, this is Sony, and they uh, abandoned the Vita as soon as, as it was launched. But, you know, there's a lot of developers out there voicing their kind of disdain for this whole situation. So, as usual, I will just tell people you should 
mod your Vita. You should mod your PS3. You should mod your PSP, especially because it's one of the easiest software mods to do. You just drag and drop a couple of things onto the PSP. Those other two are a little bit more complicated, but if I can do it, you can do it. I would say now would be the time to grab some physical Vita games, but the prices are already going eight. So good luck with that, people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I noticed that. I think I might have even sent you a message about it the other day that Vita prices, I've noticed, have really started to skyrocket. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, just add that to the new list of things that are skyrocketing. And uh, now with these new stimulus checks, uh, the prices of stuff are just through the roof. And I'm just, just so disappointed in people for paying these absurd prices for things. I've been fortunate enough to be a part of Facebook groups with collectors and people that sell things to each other and people that are fair to each other. And so if any advice I can give, try to join some of these groups, put some faith in some people and stay the hell away from eBay. Just use your PayPal goods and services for your protection and you're going to be fine. So uh, let's not let those prices keep going up. It's, uh, you know, it, it's not good for anyone. I'm going to counter that and say it's good for (laughs) me. It's good for Sean. (laughs) (laughs) The high prices of video games have been very good to me this year. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, man. All right. Well, speaking of Facebook, a little news here. I just started a Facebook group this morning. As a lot of you know, I am involved in this local thing called Geekapalooza, and on April the 18th, we're going to be having our second one. It's a Sunday. It's out here in Summerfield, North Carolina. Once again, I'm you know getting it together. People are going to be bringing tables and setting up outdoors with um, video games and vintage toys, and should be a lot of fun to do this again. The first one was fairly successful, and we hope to have better numbers at this, but i uh, I set up a um, Facebook page for a, a local Facebook group called Triad Video Game Collectors for the Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point area. You know, I'm just trying to get the community more involved, trying to host more events. I went to a new game store that opened up in Winston-Salem yesterday. I spoke with them, and they want me to run one of their events for them. And so, uh, yeah, I'm just hoping that the love for video gaming and local swapping will grow and... Uh, you know, just trying to get the community involved a little more. Very cool. Awesome initiative, man. Yeah, just trying to do what I can as if my schedule with three kids, a podcast, a website, and everything else isn't enough on my plate. (laughs) I'm always (laughs) jumping into something different, but it stresses me out, but I just can't help myself sometimes. I just like being involved, so I guess that's a good thing. All right, speaking of involvement, Sean, let's go into pickups. Anything you've gotten recently? I actually have a few this month and more coming in, but I'll save them for next month because they're not in my grubby little hands yet. So, oh, okay. Uh, I talked about the game called Cat Quest last month, and I even specifically said that I was going to sell my copy of Cat Quest 1 and buy Cat Quest 2 because it includes Cat Quest 1. <laughs> So I did exactly that. I actually didn't sell it for what it was worth. I sold it to our good friend and listener of the show, Corey, for a very, very reasonable price and then picked up Cat Quest 2. Another score that I had, I went into a Goodwill and usually 
I don't find games at Goodwill, and if I do, they're usually stolen out of the cases. There's a couple in my area. Some of them keep disc-based things in a book in the front of the store, which is what they all should do. Yes. But in this particular one, if there's anything worth a damn, they've always, always been stolen out of the case, and you just got (laughs) empty cases sitting there. But in this instance, I found a copy of Dragon Age Origins Ultimate Edition for the PlayStation 3. This is not a game I need because I have both Dragon Age Origins and Dragon Age Awakening on the Xbox 360. I have physical copies of both of those, so I don't actually need it on the PS3, but it's somewhat of a rarity a little bit that it would have been it could either be a good flip for me to sell on ebay or to just give to somebody because i was able to get it cheap at goodwill so i'm not sure what i'm going to do with that but yeah dragon age origins ultimate edition and then lastly my co-worker i have shouted out all three of my co-workers on this episode so that's pretty awesome mike I actually had an extra Xbox 360 that I was okay letting go of. And he had mentioned a few times that he wanted one, not knowing that I had one to give away. We were just, you know, bullshitting about video games. And he said he didn't have a 360 and was kind of looking for one. So I gave him one of my extra ones. And he started buying up games like crazy because, of course, Xbox 360 games are dirt cheap and you can buy them in lots. So he's buying lots and lots and lots of (laughs) Xbox 360 games off of eBay and ShopGoodwill.com and all these other places. So he's been, hey, do you need this? Do you need Halo 4? Do you need Call of Duty? you need Skyrim? And I was like, man, I don't care. I'll take them. You know what I mean? So he's <laughs> yeah. just been throwing me these commons on Xbox 360. And some of which I don't have because I've called through to have only the games I really want and less common games. But I don't mind having like disc only copies of certain things that I can throw on a spindle. And there's been a few that I didn't have. So those games I just mentioned and hopefully a few more coming soon. So that's been a really cool, (laughs) you know, I threw him that, that 360 and now he's throwing me back some games. It's kind of nice. So those are, my scores. Mm, lucky you, man. I work with a bunch of old people. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's going to have games unless their kids have left them lying around. They just want to get rid of them. So hmm. uh, yeah, that's the only chance I have to score anything. Well, it's funny. Just to smash some stereotypes, Mike is an older gentleman, and he is quite an avid gamer. Very nice. <laughs> Love to hear that. My coworkers are more of the... Video games rot your brains generation that yeah. my parents are from. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's that. All righty. Well, I will start my pickups with two games I know Sean will hate uh, for the PS4, and that's Sekiro Shadows Die Twice and Bastion. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I actually already had Bastion digitally downloaded but i ended up getting a physical copy for ps4 
I had signed up for one of these like Amazon credit cards that my wife and I used while we were doing our bathroom remodel. And so you get a lot of cash back, which is very nice. So I ended up getting this game for three bucks, which was cool. Nice. Next is a game Sean will be very happy that I picked up, and that was for the 360, and it is the first Templar. Excellent. Amazing game. I'm wondering if I should try and convince you to do this as a playthrough. Is it a game that we could play by ourselves? Or I know it's co-op, so yeah. I have to co-op it with someone. You can play single player, and the second player will be controlled by the AI. So you could do it either way. All right. How difficult is it? Is it something my wife could possibly play with me or one of my kids? Definitely both. Uh, okay. The difficulty is adjustable and... I believe we played it on the most easy difficulty and any kind of challenges came from like the design of the game, but you can usually cheese certain things. I'll give you a quick example. There's one mandatory stealth sequence where you have to sneak through this camp of guards and if you alert them, you have a chance to fight them, but they're on a really strict timer where you have to defeat them all or they'll set off an alarm and you fail. So my wife and I were banging our heads against this section And the way we got past it was literally running through the camp to the next checkpoint and the game auto saved and we were on our way. (laughs) So there's a bunch of like (laughs) the game is so kind of duct taped together as much as we loved it. One of the endearing factors of the game is the faults in the design, but things like that are what make it challenging, but it's not a hard game at all. And it's fairly easy to find. I came across several copies but I kept passing up on it, Sean, because I never found one with a manual. And so I ended up buying it and I sort of thought to myself, hmm, maybe this game didn't have a manual. And I'm not sure about that because RF Generation doesn't have a manual listed for this game. So Ooh, maybe that's something you can elaborate on. Does it have a manual? I'm pretty sure it does. And I think I have, I think it has a poster in it. Okay. So cool. yeah, I might have to scan, scan, that in, dude. scan the poster too. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to see that. All right, so moving on, PS1 games. I picked up Danger Girl, Treasure Planet, The Bombing Islands, Burstrick Wakeboarding, which one of our members was kind enough to do an awesome review and video of this budget title on rfgeneration.com. I believe it might have been Sir Psycho. If I'm wrong about this, I'll correct it next episode. But it was such a good review that I decided to pick that up for cheap. I recently uh, went to the beach with my daughter to play soccer. And, of course, I made everyone stop by a game store for 30 minutes for daddy time. (laughs) And I picked up a copy of Rogue Trip and Ray Tracers. Rogue Trip is a Twisted Metal-like game, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very fun. And from a lot of people I've heard, is very underrated. And Ray Tracers is a racing combat type game where you have nice racing cars like you would in the Ridge Racer series, but there are some battle elements to it as well, such as a game like Mario Kart. It's a little bit pricey game at around $25 to $30 for a racer, which was really surprising, but the game had some really, really good reviews, and I was able to find a cheap copy locally, so I'm really happy with that. And then uh, on Genesis, I picked up a copy of Galahad and Superman. On the Switch, I picked up a copy of Axiom Verge. 
We'll be talking about this game a little later. I also had this game in a collection on the PS4, but it was so cheap that I decided to pick it up on the Switch again in case I ever wanted to replay it. I picked up a game called Trine 4, which is one of these games where you play as multiple characters. Something similar to Lost Vikings, where each character has a different ability and you switch on the fly to platform and get through these different puzzle type elements. I'm a big fan of games like that, so this is one that actually comes on the Switch. It comes as Trine 4. And then you can also buy like a combo pack that I think has Trine 1 through 4 on it. Not familiar and I haven't seen a review on the earlier three games. I don't know if they're similar, so I just picked this one up when I found it. I uh, picked up a copy of Pixel Junk Monsters 2. And then I picked up a game by a very familiar developer that you will hear about next month, Supergiant Games. Hades just came out on the Switch and... Uh, I've heard nothing but great things about this game, action role-playing game, much like Transistor is, so very excited to play this. On the Super Nintendo, I picked up a copy of Dino City, Time Tracks, and another game that's a little bit of a pricey one called Incantation, uh, which is a very, very fun wizard platforming game where you just go from stage to stage. You have to collect certain items to progress. There's a little bit of a puzzle element to it, which, like I said, I always like. I picked up a new Japanese Game Boy Pocket, the gray one. Have you seen this one, Sean? I've seen Game Boy Pockets, but I don't know specifically the color. I, I think I saw your picture on Twitter. Yeah, it's basically the same color as the original Game Boy, same color scheme, hmm. uh, but it's a pocket size, and they did not put that out in the U.S. I have no idea why. Horrible mistake. They would have sold a ton of them, but it is Japan only, and it looks very nice beside my Japan only pink Game Boy pocket, which I think is really, really sweet. And then I finished up one of my collections by picking up a copy of Survival Island for the Supercharger. Are you familiar with the Supercharger, Sean? Not at all. What is that? It's basically an accessory for the Atari 2600. What you do is it's this huge cartridge that you put into it, and it has a wire that comes from it, and it connects to a tape player. You play the tape. And that's actually the video game. So the video game is actually on a cassette tape. Mm. And they only made 10 official releases, but they came out with an 11th and 12th release that was only cassette. They didn't do any boxes for them. Uh, one of those is called Sword of Sorrow. And then the one I picked up is called Survival Island. It's the last one I needed to complete my set. So my set is officially, well unofficially complete right now i still need a box and manual for my copy of party mix but as far as having all the games i do have all those now it's a really unique set for the 2600 and you know it's something that i have actually been trying to complete for years on rf generation we always have this thing where we list our goals for each year as far as collecting and this has been my goal for probably the last I would say six to seven years in finding this cassette and I finally found one at a decent price and just decided to pull the trigger and finish that off. So as far as games that is all of my pickups but I did want to mention one more thing and you probably saw this on Twitter Sean I picked up a lot of signage for my game room 
it's a lot of 3D printed logos for like Nintendo, Genesis, uh, Sega Master System, and probably my favorite was the Family Computer. I got them off of Etsy from a member known as Ready Player Two, and that is TWO, not the number. So I definitely wanted to give him a shout out. It's some really nice, high quality stuff. It comes with a stand for each one. They're all magnetic, so you don't have to use them for your game room. You can actually put them on your fridge if you so desire or attach them to your car if you want. Really cool, really, really nice quality and not overly expensive and just a really nice piece for anyone who has a game room and is a big collector like myself. So definitely wanted to give that one a shout out. Yeah, those signs looked awesome. I saw them in the Slack chat and they're very eye-catching and colorful, looking awesome. Yeah, and he's done everything. I mean, there's some very like rare systems. He's done some little signage for pinball machines, the different companies and stuff like that. For whatever reason, there's no Xbox stuff, and I need to send him a personal message and kind of find out what's going on there. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe Microsoft uh, gave him a little slap on the wrist or something for uh, using their logo, but... This guy is located in in London, England, and um, it took about a week and a half for me to get my stuff, so it shipped fairly fast. Everything was packed really nice, high-quality stuff, and can't recommend this guy enough. So, uh, yeah, check it out. All right, Sean, let's go into the games we've played in this past month. Did you want me to go first, or would you like to? Well, I only have a few. I, I usually have quite a bit, but I've spent most of my time in the past couple of months only playing our playthrough games believe it or not i'm already done with april's game and i'm already working on may's game as we're here talking about march's game i'm way ahead of everything so i'll save those for those episodes and this current episode but extracurricular activities are Since we finished the first Templar, I'm playing Earth Defense Force 2017 with my wife. Rich, have you ever played this game or anything in the series? I have. I actually played a little bit of the one on the Vita. And you and I have actually talked about doing one of these games for a playthrough before. Yeah. Uh, So there's actually a couple on the Vita. The original was remastered on the Vita, and then a few of the sequels are on there too. So if you're missing some, then there you go. But yeah, for those who don't know... This series, but especially the first game, it's like a B-movie. That's the best way to describe it. You are a space marine type person in a jumpsuit and a helmet, and you have rocket launchers and guns at your disposal, and there are aliens invading, and you have to kill them. What's amazing about this game is that even though it was in the Xbox 360 generation, it plays like a PS1 or Dreamcast game. So you're just running around, and if you set it to easy, you have infinite ammo, and you just run around blasting stuff. And what's funny is you can shoot at the buildings if they're in your way and just level the whole city to <laughs> to kind of get stuff out of your way. And the just campiness of it is is amazing and actually my wife and i are playing this in 
my room that has a projector in it. So we have about an 80 inch screen. The room's all blacked out. You know, I try to make it as much like a movie theater as I can. And there are some really, really well done scenes in this game. And we were, you know, we were talking earlier about kaiju movies, Godzilla. I love that kind of stuff where the sense of scale has to be done well. And when it is, it can really blow you away. And there are some moments in Earth Defense Force 2017, as cheesy as it is, where these giant robots are just towering over you. And there's this one level where you're on a beach and there's this giant hulking thing walking down the beach and all these other robots coming at you and they're just massive and it's just awesome. Now, I've only ever played the first game, but I've heard criticisms of the sequels that they said basically the first game was kind of like they weren't trying to be corny and cheesy and like a b-movie that's just the way the game came out and was developed it was almost like you know a so bad it's good kind of thing where they became self-aware of it and the sequels like tried more to cash in on that so i can't speak to that myself because i haven't played them yet but uh, definitely, if you've never played the series, start with the original. And it has co-op local split screen, which is what my wife and I are always looking for. And it's really funny because I never know what my wife is going to like. But when we were playing this game, she was just like cracking up and laughing and going, yeah, I got him. Like just <laughs> really getting into it. it was, it's just awesome. I love this game. And then the only other thing I'm working on right now is... The Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay, which a lot of people will recognize if you've ever Googled original Xbox hidden gems, because this is one of those games that is, oh, it's a movie tie-in game, but it's actually really, really good. So if you have a PC from, you know, from that era, I don't know if it's on Steam, but it's more to me known as an original Xbox game. I'm actually playing it, though, on the PS3, because if you have the game Chronicles of Riddick Assault on Dark Athena, which is a PS3 game, Escape from Butcher Bay is included on that disc. So I'm playing it on the PS3, and it is pretty cool. For a game from 2004, it looks amazing. The controls and the game feel are really well done for a first-person shooter on a console. The one thing that's kind of funny is it's supposed to be a stealth game, but as with many stealth games, not all, but many, I'm just playing it on easy and playing it more as a first person shooter and just blasting my way through it. Because unfortunately, it's like you'll try to be stealthy and you'll go into stealth mode by pressing a certain button that makes you crouch and you can tell when you're in the dark kind of thing. And you go very slowly and try to sneak and then you go around the corner and, you know, there's six guys and they go, there he is, get him, (laughs) you know, and it's like, ah, just open fire, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So again, I like this game a lot and there have been some frustrating parts, but nothing I couldn't get through. And I'm definitely hoping to, uh, to finish this game. It definitely deserves its reputation as a very good game, even though it's a licensed game with Vin Diesel in it. (laughs) And I'll tell you a funny story. This is just a dumb, stupid inside joke. But one time my mom was watching a movie and I don't know what movie, it might have been one of the Fast and the Furious movies or something. And I was like, what are you watching? And she said what movie it was. And I just went like, oh, that's stupid. And she goes, it's got Van Dugan in it. 
I'm like Vin Dugan. <laughs> That's what she was. She called Vin Diesel Van Dugan by accident. So now it's Van Dugan Hauser MD. <laughs> So that's uh, an inside joke between my wife and I that will never die is, oh, is that Van Dugan? (laughs) (laughs) I might have to steal that. (laughs) Cool, man. So that's what I'm playing. Uh, Again, besides all of our awesome playthrough games that we have lined up for the next few months. What about you? Well, man, I'm in a real loss right now going second. I don't know how long this has been. (laughs) (laughs) in games played but i'm gonna do my damnedest here so it's funny my kids are actually on spring break right now for uh the entirety of last week and then they have monday off as a teacher work day and so with the kids being around the house and annoying the living piss out of us while we're trying to work i thought well what can i get them involved in that they might enjoy so that we can keep them occupied and i came up with guitar hero on the wii we have two guitars one is mine and then my wife has one too with the sweet pink face plate that she had when we used to play prior to having kids so i got them set up on it and Of course, my kids, they get pissed off because they can't do things from the get-go. And so they're getting frustrated, and then they finally do some tutorials. And like within a day, my son is absolutely hooked on this game. And then my daughter realizes that he likes it, and he talks her into doing the tutorial and checking it out. And she gets into it, too. Well, realized that my second guitar wasn't working, so my neighbor, Game Ruler's No Account Dad, brings one of his guitars over for them to use. And then that same day, I go to a video game shop after searching four or five shops the day before and find one. So now they both have their own guitars, and man, they are eating it up. And I've jumped in a few times, of course, to play uh, My Name is Jonas by Weezer and play Number of the Beast with my daughter because she's a big metalhead like my son is. Just enjoying playing some Guitar Hero, something we haven't broken out in a long time. My sons, they're both big gamers. My daughter, not so much because she just gets really frustrated easily. But she is very much enjoying Guitar Hero. And so hopefully this will be a gateway drug for her to get into video gaming. It's a lot of fun and something uh, our family is really enjoying right now. And then the second game that I've played, I actually went to the local arcade that I've talked about on the show before, Wieners and Losers, with Game Ruler. And it's been over a year, Sean, since I've been there because of COVID. And I got to play a game called King and Balloon. Have you ever heard this game, Sean? I've never even heard of it. And let me tell you why, because there's only <laughs> 10 of them known to exist. Wow, that's like some Polybius shit right there. <laughs> it's amazing. This guy has several of these only five to exist, only 10 to exist type games in his arcade, which is fantastic and really cool that he shares this with everybody. I think the game design was done by Taito. But the actual machine was put out by a company named Game Plan, which I never knew did arcade machines, but I've actually owned a pinball machine by this company, and they didn't make a lot of those. So I was able to put the high score on this game with my last attempt before my three hours of time ran out. 
they have a computer screen that shows all the high scores, and he changes them out, and he put my name up there. He's like, Rich, I hate to tell you this. He's like, I'll take your picture if you want me to, but the kid that has the high score for this game is coming in during the second session from six to nine. (laughs) And he's probably going to beat it, so I'm not going to post it. I said, well, Scott, I want you to take my picture anyway. So I got this sweet-ass picture of me sucking on this milkshake in front of this machine, just looking all hard as fuck. (laughs) Like, you know, I did it with ease. And he took this picture. He's like, man, I hope this kid doesn't break your score because I want to post this picture so bad. (laughs) So I got a message this morning that, in fact, the kid did beat my high score. And so he'll probably post a picture of this kid, which... When I see this picture, I'm going to post mine below it and let him know that I'm coming for his ass <laughs> because I'm going to get this high score again. This game was actually put out on console. It was put out on MSX, if you've ever heard of that console. Mm-hmm. My local game store actually has both editions of the MSX, and the local store owner has been trying to get me to buy it because he thinks it's something I would love. It's similar to the arcade, but nowhere like the arcade. You should definitely check out a video of this game. It's a really cool shooter-type strategy game, and I just fell in love with it the first time I played it. It's really cool. So uh, if anyone knows of an arcade king and balloon out there, let me know because uh, I'm currently on the lookout for one. And then the final thing I want to mention, it's not a game that I played, but uh, something that you and I talk about on the show a lot is anime. And you had sent me a copy of the book, Paprika, and I've started reading that book, and I'm enjoying it quite a lot. And, you know, I just wanted to thank you for that. I also have the movie, but I haven't seen it yet. I think it was done by the same guy that did Perfect Blue. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm going to bring up another one of my scores, non-video game related. So you're talking about Satoshi Kon, who did Paprika. He did Perfect Blue. He did a movie called Millennium Actress. He did a movie called Tokyo Godfathers. He wasn't super prolific. I might be missing one or two. But he also did a series called Paranoia Agent, which is something that I recently added to my Blu-ray collection. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm very excited. I think I might watch that series with my wife. And then Tokyo Godfathers is the only Satoshi Kon Blu-ray that I still don't have. But that's as simple as purchasing it off Amazon when I feel the time is right. And I believe I will have all of his movies. But yeah, so that's a little sidetrack from Paprika. I'm really glad that you're enjoying that book because... I tried, man. I tried to read it like three times because I loved the movie so much that I thought, how can I not like the book? Something about how it's written or even translated, I just couldn't get very far into it. It wasn't entertaining me enough or whatever. So I'm really, really glad that you're enjoying it. Yeah, I'm probably about 100 pages or so into it. I started it when I was at the beach. Just to kind of give a little synopsis really quickly, it's um, sci-fi, futuristic type book where basically they've invented these devices to help people who have schizophrenia where these people can put these devices on their heads and look at their dreams and even enter into their dreams to try to find out what the source of their issue with either schizophrenia or anxiety is to be able to cure it. And so there is a girl known as Paprika who is able to go in and help these people out 
Some of this stuff is illegal and not approved by the government. So people are trying to track her down and figure out who she really is. And, uh, you know, from that perspective, it's very interesting to me so far. So we'll have to see how it plays out. We did a segment on Perfect Blue a while back. If people want to go check that out. So I would, I would love to explore more of his work. He's just one of these creators who just kind of stands out above yeah. uh, everybody else in that realm. So definitely would love to discuss more of his works. Let's get into our main topic of discussion, which is the PlayStation 1 blockbuster classic known as Eternal Eyes. And as usual, we'll start with our question of the month, which can be found by following us on Twitter. That's at RFG Playcast. On Instagram, my personal account, it's at Sean Gray, S-H-A-W-N-G-R-A-Y. On Discord, which is linked on the front of RFGeneration.com. And usually on the forum thread, and we forgot to post it this month. So the question was, it wasn't a question. I phrased it as a command, an imperative. <laughs> Tell us about your favorite stuffed animal from your childhood. And I always like the nostalgic questions because they're always money. People love to answer those. So let's go to Twitter. We got Bill. He said, I had a wrinkles hound dog stuffed animal when I was a kid that I loved. We also had a stuffed elf that we would use to crack the jokes from the show like, hey, Willie, your pumpkin's on fire. <laughs> Man, we talked about Alf in a previous episode and I still haven't rewatched it. I'm really curious what it would be like to watch that show. It holds up, man. It's funny. Alf always trying to eat the cat is one of the funniest things ever. 
my kids like it. So, you know, awesome. it has to hold up well. But my kids also like Steve Urkel. So there you go. Just to let Bill know, I actually have a stuffed ALF in my game room. Actually, a few of them that I've found over the years going to flea markets and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, ALF was a big part of my childhood as well. Never had a stuffy, though. Perfect. That's actually all we got from Twitter. Let me jump over to the Discord here. And we got Josh, better known as Game Boy Guru or Metal Fro. He said, I had a teddy bear I literally named Teddy that was with me through my childhood. At one point, I still had it saved with some of my childhood stuff as a memento, but I'm pretty sure I got rid of it years ago. Teddy wasn't particularly soft and wasn't particularly cute, but he was still a special gift as a kid. Classic answer from Josh there. Next, we got Pony Tatsujin, who says, when I was a young lad, my mom got me this big, squishy Pikachu plush like it was huge. I carried that thing with me everywhere. Heck, I even had Ma buckle it into the seat. Eventually we had to get rid of it, but at least I remember how weird the dang thing felt. I think he meant to say, sorry, it's typed a little bit weird. It's hard to read. <laughs> Next, we have Shadow Kisuragi with the most Florida answer I've ever seen because it's a big stuffed gecko and he shared some photos on the Discord here. He said, uh, never knew my dad well growing up, so I suspect that's why I latched on more than usual since my dad works with reptiles. But I love lizards and still do, and he would ride with me everywhere in pockets on my shoulder and in elementary school. I presume he's talking about the lizard here and not his dad. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact, his dad was Steve Irwin. <laughs> Uh, he says, had him close to 30 years now, and he survived numerous cat attacks and moves. And he even did a detailed photo of where mom had to do some emergency repairs when one of the cats got a hold of him. So <laughs> nice. Appreciate that answer. Lastly, on the Discord, we got Engineer Mike. He said, it's a small, plain white bear with a wind-up music box inside. It looks ratchet as hell, but I have possessed it since I was first alive. Cool. So, thank you for all the responses there. I didn't get anything on Instagram, but that's all good. And I will move on to my wife. I asked her this question. She had a little bit of a hard time coming up with an answer, but her answer turned out to be funny because she said, uh, it was a Fozzie Bear thing. And <laughs> I was like, okay. And I said, was it a puppet? And she said, I think so. And I said, did it have like a plastic hat? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I had that same exact one, a Fozzie Bear puppet with a plastic hat and she said yeah i used to always try to rip the hat off but i never could <laughs> and i was like damn <laughs> so actually i just looked up uh this fozzy bear hat puppet can be had for about 25 bucks off ebay there's one listed with the date of 1978 on it which is a little bit before my time but i still had one of these and so did my wife so that was kind of cool Sounds like a great idea for a Valentine's Day present. Uh, perhaps. Yeah. So for me, I had a few come to mind. 
like Josh, I have a little bear that's probably about, I don't know, eight to 10 inches tall, very small. So I've actually kept it and I had it since I was either born or since I was a baby and I still have it. It's in a box somewhere. I also got to give a shout out to my pet monster, uh, oh, very, man. very popular toy. Hey, it's just an honorable mention. I'm not trying to steal if that's your answer. No, no, it's not. I've just been looking for one forever. I would love to have one for my game room. Yeah. From what I gather, the monster itself is not hard to find, but those breakaway Chains. handcuffs. Yep. Yeah. Chains. <laughs> I'll take it any way I can get it. If there you go. There has <laughs> but my favorite stuffed animal, this is kind of weird. And I had to look up what it was called because I couldn't remember. But the line of toys, quote unquote, is called Pillow People. Do you remember these? Well, if it's the wrestling buddies, I remember those, but I don't remember pillow people. Per se. So kind of similar, but this okay. is more, it's like literally a pillow, but it has a print of, you know, a doll or a person, or there's one with like a window. And I had one that was called Dinah Snooze. Before I did my research, I remembered it as a dragon, but I guess it's supposed to be a dinosaur. So it's like a pillow shape that has like a tail sewn onto it. And the dinosaur's head is kind of a, an extension off of the pillow. And what's funny is I used to love this thing and I used to sleep with it every night. And I told my wife this funny thing I used to do because it had a strap on the back, like a loop, and I could stick my arm in it. And I would go to sleep with my arm in it and I would let it cut off my circulation in the middle of the night and wake me up. So I would wake up in the middle of the night when everybody was sleeping and I don't know why I thought that was cool or whatever. <laughs> so I would do that on purpose. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so that's, I don't know why. I don't know what was driving that, but uh, <laughs> that's just a weird memory I have. And I was able to look up these things and I... I guess this particular one is kind of rare because there's none listed on eBay right now. And I looked up sold listings and there's only one sold listing that comes up from January and it went for $75. So this one I will not be reclaiming into my collection for sure. But that is a weird stuffed animal slash pillow hybrid. So if you don't remember pillow people, look it up. It might jog your memories. You weren't making your hand go to sleep to do a stranger, were you? No, 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 no. <laughs> way, way too young for that. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, listeners, don't just go Google to Urban it. Dictionary. <laughs> All right, man. Well, this question, you know, I had originally proposed to do who is your favorite Muppet, but we ended up going with yours because I really couldn't think of any stuffed animals that I had growing up. I think it's just like whole machismo Southern boy kind of thing where you don't want to give your kid stuffed animals because it's equated to like a doll, you know, mm -hmm. and some people even call them dolls. Yeah. And then I remembered as I was walking through my game room, I actually have a stuffy. It's not the original one I had, but it's one that I had growing up. And I, I found it a few years ago and put it up in my game room. But I had this four to five inch Garfield stuffed animal. It was really soft. It actually had plastic whiskers and it had those like hard eyeballs. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 
So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that with my cousins and stuff, I was probably the recipient of a few cracked heads from that Garfield plushie. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I have that. And, uh, yeah, that would be probably the one stuffed animal from my childhood that I remember. My kids have lots of stuffed animals. In fact, my uh, four-year-old is really into Sonic right now and woke up to the Easter Bunny bringing him a plushy Sonic this morning that uh, he's been carrying around all day and is just completely in love with it. Yeah, um, you were mentioning that pillow earlier, and I know that there's this thing now with, like, anime where people actually have those pillows, <laughs> and that's what it made me think of. <laughs> but they sell them at my local game store, which is, like, bizarre. I asked about them, and I was like, ooh, this is kind of strange. I, I don't know. It's not my thing. But, uh, I mean, I can't say anything. I have an Elvira mouse pad with boobs. So, uh, there you go. Holy shit. Okay. My kids love to touch the gel boobs, too. <laughs> I really should have seen that coming, that we were going to get into anime body pillows. I can't believe I didn't. See that coming, dude. Thank you, thank you. you know, it thank took you seven years and you up. haven't figured that out yet. You know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't have a body pillow, but I would be a good candidate for one. I, I'm pretty sure I've said this on yeah, the show before because I sleep with a pillow between my knees for whatever reason. I'm most comfortable sleeping on my side, but something has to be between my ankles and between my knees. I, I, I usually just use a regular pillow. So I, uh, and what better thing than a fucking waifu? That's what I need. I need a waifu. I need either <laughs> Ryuko from Kill a Kill, Mikasa from Attack on Titan. Yeah, they're out there. And I've thought about it. If your wife listens to the show, Valentine's Day present for you. There you, there you go. go. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think we found our intro. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, let's get into Eternal Eyes, Rich. This is such a interesting pick. I got to be honest, man, because this is one of those games. And before we get into the development details, which there hardly are any, I want to ask you, I know you're a big PS1 collector, as am mm -hmm. I, but you're more actively pursuing it right now. And this game, to me, is one of those games that you just always saw in the quote-unquote proverbial bargain bin for five bucks, yeah. and it has the worst cover art ever. Oh, Elephant in the Room, man. We gotta talk about that. <laughs> yeah. It is shit. So, we usually talk about our histories with games. I mean, that's my history, is just, oh, that god-awful cover... And I don't even know what the game is about. I didn't even realize it was a strategy RPG. I own this game and I don't know why. So what made you want to do this game? You know, I have the same history as you. This is a game that I've picked up several times at flea markets and just put back down immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, the funny thing is I've only looked at the cover. I wouldn't flip it around to look at the back, which you know has some pictures of RPG elements and describes the game. Every time I picked it up, I thought it was some, like, lame-ass first or third-person medieval-type game. Yeah. I really like RPGs. I feel like the PS1 probably has the best library of RPGs. The Super Nintendo coming behind, I know it's probably blasphemy to a lot of people. I love both fairly equally, and I think both do a great job, so don't troll me too much on that statement. But... 
in collecting for PS1, you watch all these like lists. Okay, let's see a list of all the RPGs that are out on the system. And this one popped up. I said, oh, well, that seems interesting. You know, it was a YouTube video with just a little small portion of gameplay, and it had like a number, and then it would just say the title. You know, no more of a description of that before it moved on to the next one. And so I was like, oh, well, let me look at a review. And lots of very unfavorable reviews, but I think I happened to get on one that gave it a fairly favorable review. It didn't call it a hidden gem or anything like that, but it just said, you know, this is a bit of an underrated game that I don't think people give enough of a chance. And so I learned it was a tactical RPG. Um, I learned that it had sort of like Pokemon elements to it, which, I mean, really, that's not something that's typically appealing to me. But you and I really love to um, pick these kind of oddball titles every once in a while. We play a lot of heavy hitters and, you know, well-known titles, but... Every now and then, it's nice to try something fresh that not everyone's doing. And so I thought to myself, I bet this would be something Sean would probably be interested in. And I have an interest in it, too. So, you know, why not? Let's do that next month if he's into it. Awesome. And it only took me one YouTube video to be interested in because I watched a review on it. And it happened to be one of the rare, like favorable reviews on the game where the guy said, hey, it's just kind of an easy, short RPG with Pokemon elements in it and give it a shot. So that's when I messaged you. Yeah, let's do this game. So (laughs) yeah, checks all the boxes short (laughs) (laughs) strategy RPG Pokemon elements. Exactly. If it just said waifu heroin, (laughs) then it's all Sean would need. Well, it is kind of a cute RPG. Like we've discussed a few of those in the past, like Magical Star Sign and Rhapsody, which this game reminded Mm -hmm. me of a lot. But let's get through the the nuts and bolts, which we were messaging before coming on the air here. And I was just saying that the development history of this game is not very much out there. In fact, this game does not have an English language Wikipedia page which is usually the first place I go. I know that's lazy research, but you start at Wikipedia and work your way out usually. It was kind of hard to find details on the development of it, but it came out in Japan as Kokorosatu Yuku no Hitomi and was later released in what I can gather November of the year 2000 in North America as Eternal Eyes. It was developed by Tam Tam Soft and published by Crave and Sunsoft. The director of the game is Norio Takeuchi, and I only note that because this is the only game he directed, from what I understand. So this is his only game. He was a programmer for this developer on other games, but this is his directorial debut and his only game that he directed. Another interesting note And the only place I saw this was on the review of this game on the site rpgamer.com is that the person writing the review noted that this game was launched for a retail price of $9.99. Really? Yeah. Now I had trouble verifying that anywhere else, but if that's true, that's very interesting because usually when I think of budget games, I think in the $20 to $30 range. And I feel like it's always been this way. And I can hardly think of an actual physical retail release for any major console that would come out for $10 at release. So that's true. Yeah. So yeah, so if that's true, that's very interesting. So this was kind of a fun challenge to even find 
those very sparse details on the development of this game. So very interesting that there's not much of a history there or not much of a recorded history, so to speak. (laughs) We'd spoken a few hours before the recording and I was like, I know it's kind of my turn to talk about the stats stuff, but I see you've already got some down in the notes. You said, well, I'll go ahead and do it because there's not a lot to it. And I was like, really, that's that's kind of odd. But I, I do remember trying to check out the Wikipedia page because I start there a lot of times, too, for source material. One should never use Wikipedia as their primary source, but a lot of times when it comes to story and plot, when I'm trying to do the story in 60 seconds, it's a really good source for me. And so that's where I saw it for the first time. You're right, there's really not a lot of information there, which is quite bizarre for a game. Well, speaking of the story, why don't you give us a story in 60 seconds? Story in 60 seconds. Ages ago, during the Great War, the people of Gross fought desperately against Luna, a goddess bent on world domination. The Crimson Eyes, a mystical tribe able to bring puppets to life by using magical gems, helped the people turn the tide and seal away the goddess of destruction. As time passed, the people of Gross turned on the Crimson Eyes out of fear and ostracized them into virtual extinction. That is, until a group of followers broke the goddess's seal. You are Luke, a descendant of the Crimson Eyes, who accidentally stumbles upon his magical talents. It's up to you and your enchanted band of puppets to put an end to Luna and her followers and bring peace back to Gross. That was very good, and I think either you didn't see it or you don't agree with me. Uh, my post on the forum where I said, knowing translations and Japanese naming conventions, that it's probably pronounced gross, and that's just a total guess on my part. But when I see on the screen gross kingdom, I said they couldn't mean that. It has to be gross kingdom. I bet you it is. But there's no way to know, really. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, in a lot of videos that I watched on the game, it's typically pronounced gross. And, you know, there are these sort of comical moments in the game and the way that items are named. I don't know if you remember that or not, but special items to increase your attributes would be like smack of your dad's hand yeah. or something <laughs> like that. You know what I'm yeah, talking about? I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah and so... For that reason, I think that it probably is pronounced gross. Once again, I think it's just one of these odd things where they were trying to go for this comical element but didn't follow through with it completely, and it's hard to be comical in a game that is so serious. So I think it's pronounced gross, and and that's just my opinion based on videos I've listened to, like I said, and some of the item descriptions and stuff like that in the game. That's fine. Let's, I, I don't want to dwell fine. on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I do want to say the story in general, I think it was just serviceable at best. I think the story here is not one of the game's strong suits. It's a little bit cliched, a little bit contrived. It's the chosen one cliche. It's the saving the world from an ancient evil cliche. Our parents aren't really dead cliche. There's a lot in there. I didn't think the story did anything too special except for the involvement of the puppets, which plays into the gameplay. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. There's nothing really special about the story. The one thing that I did like about the story and take away is this idea of prejudice with the eternal eyes, how they were used and helped save the world. And then they were sort of cast away. Okay. It doesn't get expound upon a whole lot, but it does give it a little bit of an edge over other sort of just save the world stories. But, you know, all in all, I'm with you. There wasn't anything extremely special about it. All right. Well, having said that, I think we should move into gameplay because I think this discussion will be dominated by gameplay because as we discovered while we played this game, both in our private messages and on the forum, this game has a lot of hidden depth to it. Mm -hmm. So I want to get right into that. The game is an isometric uh, strategy RPG or a tactical RPG, whichever phrase you want to use in the vein of a game that we played in the past, like Vandal Hearts. And it's often compared to the more well-known games in the genre, like Final Fantasy Tactics or Tactics Over, the other games in the genre that are its peers from the time. What's interesting about this game is there's 10 chapters, and each chapter has a bunch of smaller battles to play, whereas in a game like Vandal Hearts, you have every battle is this like big main event thing with like heavy story context, and if every battle feels like it's the end of the world, do or die kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in Eternal Eyes... You're given a cutscene at the beginning of chapter one or chapter two, and then you go into a menu and you say, you know, ground floor battle, first floor battle, second floor battle, and you just go into these kind of smaller arenas and you can fight as few as three or four enemies and you will go through the game that way. Another thing that's very unique about this game is that your party consists only of Luke and up to three of these Pokemon types of things, which are referred to by many different terminology, either puppets or pappets or mappets, or uh, there was another word for them, Mappymon or something. <laughs> so just a quick aside, the terminology in this game is very confusing. So if you hear us say puppets or pappets, I'm probably just going to say puppets most of the time. You know, it's funny, on the back cover, they refer to the character as Luca, and his name is Luke. I don't know if it's lost in translation or just the cheap and fast way this game was made, that just a lot of things are called different things. So just bear with us on that. Even though there's a cast of main characters in the game, you only play as Luke and up to three different puppets. So that's interesting. Yeah, um, it, it's a little odd. <laughs> in a yeah. way it's, oh yeah <laughs> uh because he's like we're coming with you we're gonna support you uh yeah we'll just stay behind and uh let you go in there <laughs> <laughs> they literally say a few times luke you got to clear out the monsters for us we can't go in there <laughs> yeah <laughs> just like everyone's bitch or something i don't know it's, <laughs> it's really weird and it's strange that you don't play as any of the other human characters in the game. However, I, I will say that the other characters are very essential to the story and they have beautiful profiles uh, and then just so well done for a PS1 game. I was very, very impressed with that. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> like like you said, it's a little odd. It's it's nice to have some companions and you know other people involved in the story. But I think some people that play this game might expect a little more interaction than what you get. 
battles like i said as luke you have an attack and you can do magic but only by using jewels and now here's a key to this depth that we're talking about after each battle you can earn jewels from treasure chests the treasure chests come from defeated enemies what's kind of cool or frustrating however you want to look about at, at the treasure chests is that they get in the way as obstacles. You have to waste a turn attacking them if you want to claim them during the battle. And sometimes the enemies will go after them and attack them and destroy them. If you manage to leave them alone and they don't get destroyed, they will open automatically at the end of the battle. So I'm going to pause right here and ask you, what was your tactic with the chests? Because for me... After like the first three battles or so, I just didn't care about the chests unless they were in my way. If an enemy wanted to smash one, I don't care. Take it. I'll, I'll get more, you know? <laughs> so yeah. um, I thought the treasure chests were an, a very interesting, something I've never seen. I'm by no means an expert or veteran at strategy RPGs, but it, it was very unique to me. Yeah, it's a very interesting gameplay mechanic, and I was really off-put about it at the beginning because when I figured out things could hit your chest and take them away, I was like, what? Normally when you take out an enemy, you get everything that that enemy was in possession of, or after the entire round's over, you get Mm -hmm. everything as a, a culmination of the enemies that you attacked and killed. It was interesting that you could use the chest strategy-wise and that you had to oftentimes protect them. Like you, for the first three or so levels, I was doing my best to protect the chest. But when you realize that you can actually go back and replay levels and grind, and the stronger you got, the more enemies you could take out quicker, and you really didn't have to worry about protecting the chest, 
I think I loosened up on that quite a bit and didn't worry so much about them. Sometimes I would move my characters in a certain way where the enemies would attack my characters and possibly not attack the chess. But once you kind of get into the game and get a few levels behind you, you just don't worry about them anymore. You get so much loot as you grind throughout the game anyway, it doesn't really matter. Correct. And when you speak of loot, you kind of touch on one of the things that kind of throws this game out of balance in a weird way, which is the economy that... yeah. There are two shops in the game, one in Gross or Gross Kingdom and the other one's at the Goondocks. And I did buy a few things there and I bought and sold there. But most of the good gear you're going to get, you're going to get from the chests at the end of battles, especially if you're grinding a lot, which I was at times. So the economy of the game is very unbalanced because you get all the gear from battle, but also because you cannot buy these jewels And in the early stages of the game, you really need those jewels because they serve a dual function. Those are how Luke does his magic. As Luke, you don't have MP. You don't have mana or magic points. So you can use your jewels to do magic attacks on enemies. You can also use them for traps, which are really cool. In the early stages of the game, especially, these are super overpowered where you can throw a jewel on a tile next to you or sometimes further away, depending on what it is, that will set a trap that if an enemy steps on it or if one of your characters steps on it, unfortunately, it will do damage and sometimes a ton of damage. So Never knew that. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what the jewels are used for in battle. But the other very important thing they're used for is leveling up your puppets. Your first puppet you get, they're kind of like a blank slate. They literally look like this little template of a puppet. And you feed it its first jewel and it becomes something. And then as the game goes on, you're adding different jewels to it to evolve it. And there's up to five evolutions or you're increasing its stats or teaching it magical spells. So every jewel has a corresponding magical spell. The jewels are divided into colors and then subdivided into, I don't know what you call them, attributes. Maybe elements would be a way, some somewhere like that, like earth and fire and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and then some of them are like wisdom, power, beast, or whatever. So... Kind of unintentionally funny in this game. I don't know if I should even say it, but there's a white power jewel. So, uh, (laughs) talk about lost in translation. Yeah. So that was kind of fun. I saw some of the YouTube videos I watched on this and did a funny take on that, dropping the uh, particular Dave Chappelle (laughs) soundbite, let's just say. Yeah, but anyway, those jewels are very important, and it's just kind of funny that you have to grind for them and you can't buy them. Meanwhile, halfway through the game, I had capped the amount of money, which is called uh, Maka, I think. Mm -hmm. I had like 99.999, which is the cap for the Maka, and I had nothing to use it on because you can't buy jewels with it. So, Right. And there's no use buying equipment for it either. I mean... You get plenty just by taking out enemies, and you stay pretty much up to date with that. And, you know, one of the other things I thought was so odd about the game, Sean, just while we're on it, you know, like normal RPGs, the main character is the most powerful character in the game, and this seems to kind of flip the script Yeah, (laughs) in a way where you're not 
as powerful as the puppets are. So as odd as that is, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. As, as a matter of fact, we might as well get into the evolutions thing, because this was the part where the game kind of gets turned on its head. And I want, mm-hmm. I'll tell you a funny story. I was playing, trying to feel my way through this evolution process. It is, I don't want to say extremely confusing, but I found it to be very, very confusing. And Mr. Stubbs explained it to me on the forum like three different times. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And I didn't get it. Like, (laughs) so I still don't get it. (laughs) What finally got it for me was he said, you got to get the BW Papit because that's the most powerful one in the game. You need at least one. Or you don't need it, but like you want to have at least one of those because they just wreak havoc. So I actually found a YouTube video, the exact sequence of how to evolve that one. And that was when it clicked for me. Like, okay, I finally understand. You have to start at a certain point. You have to give it a certain sequence of jewels to teach it the spells in the right order and then evolve it each time. It's very complicated. It's something you can't explain without a visual, which is why all of us went to that chart on Game FAQs. Oh, jeez. as hell. Yeah, to be able to figure this out. And I'll say, even with the chart, even with the ranking, because there's like a power rankings list on right, Game FAQs right. as well, there were some that I couldn't do right, even though I was doing exactly what it said to do. So I don't know if it was yeah. an error in the chart or something I was doing wrong, but I was able to evolve the BW and a couple of other ones that were just massively powerful. And what's really funny, you were saying like the main character is by far not the most powerful character on the battlefield. When I first brought in the BW Papet, I didn't realize every level five spell attacks every enemy on the map. And if you're in the middle of the game or early in the game, it will defeat everybody on the map. So I posted this on the forum. I brought the BW Papet into a battle. I launched one spell and it killed everybody in one turn. And I... (laughs) busted out laughing i laughed for like five minutes i couldn't stop i said how is this game so unbalanced this is incredible and i love it (laughs) (laughs) yeah you do (laughs) yeah i mean there's something big that happens in the game and, and no spoilers after chapter four i believe it is and so around chapter five, when you're hitting around level 30 is when you can do that final evolution. And I remember casting one of those spells for the first time. And it was like, wow, this is a complete game changer. Yes. And not only like that, it kills everything on the screen, but also the animations of the spells. Holy shit. They're amazing. Yeah. The early ones are just simplistic and not great. And you're like, oh, this is kind of lame. But once you evolve those puppets up to level 30 and beyond, man, those spells are so cool. I mean, it rivals Final Fantasy games, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And there were some really great ones. Did you ever do the one that was like, uh, I forget what it was called. I should have written down some of <sighs> the know, best ones too. that I liked. But there was one that like, it's like a graveyard that was like upside yes. down. And then it scrolls up. That's and my favorite. Yeah. The Grim Reaper comes out. Oh, man, it was so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my four-year-old's favorite one was what he called the alligator and it was the one where you funnel down into the hole and then those huge teeth start closing and chasing you back up through the hole 
Did you get to that oh, one? Oh, man. I don't know if I ever used that oh, one. Oh, yeah. I can't remember what that one was called either. But, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to have to pull up some corrections for those for sure. Well, we should just know it. I mean, all of these have weird names. Like, yeah. you know, I, I actually have the manual in front of me. So, like, some of the spell names are, like, Amity, Levy, Gustoa, Kishoni. Like, they don't make sense. And, you know, it's even funnier. This game is so wacky. I just freaking love it. You get a spell, right? And the description of the spell is same effect as some other spell with some wacky name. And it's like, how the, what does that tell me? I don't have, right. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Same effect as what? Some other spell I don't have? What the? F- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. So anyway. That's the gameplay in a nutshell. And just like some further details, I will say you have to level Luke and the puppets. The level cap is 99 and the leveling is set at a hundred experience points. So it doesn't change throughout the whole game. Every 100 XP you get, you go up a level. Mm -hmm. So this makes grinding very easy and yeah. you'll be leveling up constantly. And one of the things that happens is when you level up, you will get full HP and full MP, which is something that even Stubbs commented on. And I agree with him. You can use that strategically mm-hmm. because while you can use healing items on your puppets, you can actually level them up on purpose, which will refill their mana or their HP if they're kind of low. Right. So again, the leveling is just kind of unbalanced i leveled up all the way to 99 and you know i played new game plus i actually beat this game twice because i liked it so much so um i really enjoyed the leveling and just using that strategy of and this is not a strategy that's unique to this game and a lot of strategy rpgs you want to use your weaker characters to go in for the kill so they get more experience and level up quicker that's a timeless strategy for these types of games but it's just funny because it's like easy to do in this game and very like predictable and uh, you can tell how much damage you're going to do and so on and so forth. Yeah, I agree. I feel like the leveling up in this game was great. I liked having sort of a base number to know when I was going to level up. It's not that progressive leveling system that we see in a lot of U.S. games where you level up and then you have an even higher tier to reach to reach the next level. I thought that was sort of comforting, and as far as the evolutions are concerned, it makes it a lot easier to evolve more of the Pappets. Like you said, you could have three at a time, but then you get a lot of these other blank slate Pappets throughout the game, so you can have a whole storage full of them and play around with the gems. Yeah, totally. Which I think is the intent of the game. Now, for us, being able to use these charts, I mean, they are confusing, I know I sat down for an hour one time just planning out my evolutions down on a piece of paper. It was like prepping for a fucking college exam, um, <laughs> you know, and it, and it was. And if someone needs a YouTube idea, here it is. Do YouTube videos for all of the evolutions. I'm not going to say how many views you would get. I don't know because I don't know how many people want to play Eternalize or know about <laughs> this game. But, uh, you know, there's an idea for you because, like you said, we had that one and it was awesome. It was easy to follow. But trying to chart the other evolutions was a bit of a headache, and I actually screwed one up one time. 
And I also want to mention there is one gym where you can completely reset the puppet, right? Yeah, the um, is it the Stone of Darkness? I think you get that after Chapter 3. Right, yeah, that's it, and, I believe. Yeah, and you can restore any puppet that you have to that original blank slate. Now, it loses all of its spells, but it keeps its level. Yes, so this is nice. really useful if you level 30 and go to that fifth evolution and you find it's not doing what you th- wanted it to do or what you thought it was going to do. You could always just revert it to a blank slate and try again if you're not going to, you know, revert to a save, which I did that a couple times, too. You can also sacrifice your puppet as well. That will actually blank slate it. I don't know if you knew that or not, but if one of your puppets dies, then it goes blank again and you have to reuse all of your gems and stuff to build it back up. Yeah, interesting that you should mention that. I posted on the forum that I use that as a fail state. If I lost any of my puppets in the game, I actually reset the game. I should be specific. At first, I didn't realize that you kept the level. So I thought, oh, man, this thing's going back to level one. I'm not doing that. Reset. So I was wrong. But as a result, I actually kept the same three-ish puppets for most of, let's say, past the first third of the game. So I didn't do as much experimenting as... I probably should have, but I just had such a gangster squad of puppets by like halfway through the game that it was like, there's no need to play around with this. You know, I have the top three or, you know, three of the top five puppets in the whole game. So I'm good to go. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I also want to mention about the gems that once you level your characters to that final evolution, you actually can use the gems to either learn new spells sometimes or increase your stats in certain areas. You can just keep grinding and getting gems and just making your puppets OP as absolute hell if you want to. I just kind of found that through the natural course of the game, I didn't have to do a lot of grinding. And, you know, especially when you get past level four and you're just casting one spell and you're taking all the enemies out on the screen, and you're just kind of switching from one puppet to the next per level. That way you can gain experience all the way around that you're getting so many gems that you don't really need to grind so much, right? Yeah, that's true. Although I did uh, I did grind a lot. <laughs> did you? <laughs> but, you know, I... Well, you're getting that 99, man. I was trying to hit the level cap, uh, which, yeah. you know, that, that was one of my goals in playing this game, but... <laughs> I I did grind a lot and it was just because, you know, I was enjoying the game. But I think I mentioned this earlier, each gem corresponds to one of those final spells. And what's interesting, this is another one of these elements of hidden depth. And I don't know if I'll be able to explain it perfectly, but certain stats get capped depending on what puppet it is. So you can't just dump gems into it forever because the stats will just get capped off but certain stats you can kind of overclock the puppets so there's ones where the attack will be like max 250 but you can keep feeding it that gem where it'll go above 250 and we should also mention that equipment while luke has equipment so do the puppets so their equipment is different from his but you can put certain accessories only on them, two accessories per puppet, which can increase their stats as well. So, 
you know, every jewel, like a blue beast jewel or a blue wisdom jewel corresponds to one of those spells. And then after that, you're just increasing some stat or HP, you know, max HP or max MP or whatever. Now, towards the end of the game, I wasn't paying attention to this. I grinded so much that I had the maximum of every gem, which is nine. So you can hold nine of each gem. Every single one was maxed out and I was just dumping them to dump them. So I wasn't paying super attention to what was going on once every Papet had every spell and they were just so OP that they were just smashing everything. Again, a portion of the game that kind of lacks balance is how overpowered you can get. Yeah. All right. So should we move on to the controls of the game? Yeah, definitely. I think there's only a few things to kind of note about the controls because otherwise they're very typical to strategy RPGs where you're moving around a cursor and you're hitting X to select a space and then select what you want to do, whether you want to move, attack, do a spell, whatever. Very typical of the traditional strategy RPG, but there's a few things I want to note. One is that the triangle button is cancel in this game, which is really weird because even in Japanese games, like we're used to on the PlayStation D-pad, X is confirm, circle is cancel. In Japan, it's reverse. X is cancel, circle is confirm. In this game, X is confirm, triangle is cancel. So I've never seen that before. Very interesting. The other thing is sometimes the grid can be very confusing. I can't tell you how many times I moved my cursor the wrong way in the beginning stages of playing this game because you can't tell up from diagonal left or whatever. And I actually developed a trick. At first, I had to do it physically, and then eventually I just kind of visualized it with my brain. If you turn the controller counterclockwise about 45 degrees, the D-pad will correspond exactly with which way the grid is facing, no matter which way the camera is facing. I know that sounds like kind of weird to explain it, but people have played the game next time you're playing it, just turn the controller like a steering wheel, counterclockwise, about 45 degrees, and your D-pad will correspond perfectly with the grid. Did you try that, or did you have any troubles with the movement of the cursor on the grid? Well, I'll be honest, from the beginning, I did have some trouble moving my cursor around the grid. But I think as you play it more, it just kind of becomes intuitive and natural. And so I didn't try your technique. I saw your technique on the forums, but I was a little confused as far as like how you were describing it and how to do it. So I never applied that. But uh, yeah, I agree. It can be a little off-putting. We should also mention that you can actually use the shoulder buttons to rotate the screen around, Yeah, which is uh, kind of nice. But also can throw you off even more when it comes to uh, moving your cursor around the squares. One thing I wanted to mention about the controls a little bit, and it made me think of Vandal Hearts and sort of the differences between that game and this game. Like Vandal Hearts, you can move and then attack, or you can attack and move, right? Mm -hmm. But once you do a movement and then you attack, you can't move again. Right. So you have to do one or the other, but you can't do them in sequence. With Vandal Hearts, one of the things that you could do through the game is you could plan out the attacks of all your parties before doing your attack, which I like because you could use the cancel button to back out. Like if you had moved somewhere and you hadn't attacked yet, 
you could back out of that movement, which was good. With this game, I felt that there was a problem, especially sometimes if you use like a bow and arrow or something like that. You couldn't attack when they were too close to you, and it was like there was a sort of field of range that you were able to attack on. And sometimes that threw me off with attacking and with spells. I was like, oh, well, I didn't move close enough to the enemy, or I'm too close to the enemy now to attack them. So that was something that was a little bit frustrating in the game. And um, I was wondering if that was something that you noticed as well. No, I agree. I think the point of no return in a turn is a little bit too soon. What I think you're getting at and what I would describe this as is if you go to move and then attack and you realize that where you move to isn't good for anything, (laughs) you can't cancel that move. So you need to know where you're going to move and be committed to it because that's where you're going to end up and you may have to waste your turn if you made a mistake. So yeah, I agree. But um, luckily the game is easy enough in general that I didn't die because of this ever (laughs) or, you know, it didn't become frustrating because of that. But yeah, I did notice that though. The point of no return is too soon in the turn, I think. Yeah. Speaking of unusual, how about auto attack? Did you ever use that feature? Oh, yeah, I did. I, actually, the auto attack, I found very useful for grinding. Now, Stubbs said mm-hmm. he didn't use it at all. Now, did you use it at all? Yeah, I did. And, you know, the funny thing about auto attack is that it's only good for your pappets. It can't be used for the main character. So I, I felt like that was really odd. Typical games with auto attack, everyone attacks, right? They have their own movements. But with this... I thought it was a bit of a waste. I would have loved to have used it for grinding, but, you know, instead I I couldn't just set it to auto attack, walk away, go do something else, you know, go fix a drink or (laughs) go to the restroom or anything like that. Because when the main character's turn came up, I always had to, you know, make a move. So to me, it was kind of odd. I don't know. Yeah, I used it a lot for grinding because I found the experience system Again, I keep using this word unbalanced, but it was unbalanced in a way that if you use this crazy attack all spell that kills everybody on screen, you get far less experience than you probably should, in my opinion. However, if you run around doing attacks only, which is what auto mode does, then you'll get more experience. So when you put your puppets in auto mode, they just run around and only do attacks. They never do magic. So they'll run around just doing physical attacks. And the one thing that kind of annoyed me was that they will go for treasure chests and sometimes they will prioritize those over the enemies. And I was like, you know, just leave those treasure chests alone and just go fight the enemies. But you can't (laughs) program them that way. So I think the friendly AI had kind of a little, you know, room for improvement there because I would see they would go for a chest if it was a few squares away, even if there was an enemy right behind them. And it's like, no, man, attack that dude right behind you. Like, (laughs) don't worry about the chests. But I use that a lot, even though you did have to control Luke every turn. uh, You could just cancel his turn. You know, it wasn't that hard to do. I mean, you don't want the game to just play itself and you don't even have to be there. Like, what's the point, you know? Yeah, I guess. But I just kind of felt like the game was so unbalanced that if I just cast one spell anyway, it was... It's the end of the turn, right? That's true. Well, the game, I mean, let's face it. The game gets to a point where it's broken. And the game from chapter four till about chapter nine is just going to be 
a cakewalk if you want it to be. So it ceases to be a strategy RPG at some point because there is no strategy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. That's an absolutely fair criticism. I do want to talk about this game has a new game plus element, which I mentioned because I actually did beat this game two times, believe it or not. And it's funny too, because the first time it says, Oh, do you want to save your game again? You can start a new adventure with all of your experience. And you know, you basically just start the game over with exactly the same status and the same puppets and everything. It's funny because the second time you beat the game, it's just a blank screen. It doesn't even say, like, play the game again. It's just just a blank text box with nothing in it. And then it goes to the uh, title screen. So you can't do New Game Plus more than once, which I thought was hilarious. They probably didn't think that anybody would beat the game twice. (laughs) (laughs) So were there any features in this New Game Plus that really stood out to you? I don't think there were any features at all unless I missed something. Just that you start from chapter one with the same, you know, level 99 mm-hmm. puppets that you had and all the items and all the money and everything. So it just really gave you a chance to play around with evolutions and stuff like that after you'd beat the game. Sadly, I didn't even do that. I just wanted to see how fast I could beat the game. <laughs> I seriously, I was treating it kind of as a speed run and I wouldn't have done it if I thought, you know, it would take a long time. So I was able to beat it the second time in like three sittings, probably took me a total of like two and a half hours. Well, that's true. Well, I guess that's probably what that was designed for, because if you think about it with the save system on this game, there's only one save slot. No, that's not true. Really? There's multiple save spots. Yeah. Yeah. I know because I use them. uh, Huh. I could only find one safe slot. I don't know why that was. Maybe my card was too full or something of that nature. I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I definitely had multiple saves because I saved at the very end of the first game I played and then I added saves as I went into the new game plus. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and we should say that you could save after every battle, which was nice. And like you said, if you found that you lost a character, you didn't have to backtrack very far at all if you had saved your game prior to that. I did a lot of saving, so uh, that was a nice benefit that the game allowed. Yeah, it's funny how much of this game is actually played in the menus because there's two towns that you can actually walk around in, uh, Gross and the Goondocks, and you can walk around and talk to NPCs. You can go into some of the buildings and whatnot, but you can also go to the menu and there's a move option and move is basically fast travel. So if you want to go into battle, you just do move and then exit town and it takes you to the map and you just pick where you want to go. So a lot of this game is played in the menus and there's a lot of cutting out (laughs) it's so funny just like cutting out the traditional gameplay elements of like running around the town and talking to npcs you don't have to do it you know yeah for better or for worse so i guess that would probably be a good transition to go into the graphics in the environments yeah totally so this game is very much of its era in that it is a playstation one game that is 3D environments with sprite-based characters. So this is very common. I mentioned it on our last episode. I mentioned it on the forum that this game really reminds me of a Sega Saturn game. And I'll keep saying that. I I don't know why it hit me so strongly this way. And I'm relatively certain this is a PS1 exclusive. The reason I say that is because the anime style is just very much at the forefront and the way the game is presented as far as the text boxes, the character portraits that you were talking about, Rich, and just the way the camera moves around and zooms in and out during cutscenes, and even in battle. And when you're doing like your spells and stuff, even a minor spell, not just the screen clearing spells, the camera just goes all over the place and zooms and the sprites expand. And if you're playing on a big TV, this you can see the pixels, you know, like <laughs> it's just really, um, of its time. And I love this kind of presentation because it makes you use your imagination. And I've talked about this before, but modern games to me, like anything, let's say Xbox 360 PS3 generation and newer you really don't have to use your imagination. Everything is so hyper-realistic that what you're seeing on the screen is very realistic. You don't have to imagine what's on that like single-textured bookshelf like you would in Eternal Eyes as you're walking around Luke's house, you know? Yeah. Like when you go in the basement where you evolve your puppets, there's these shelves with it looks like alchemical equipment on top of them. And you could just use your imagination to think of what would actually be there. And I love that about the PS1 generation and anything earlier than that. So I will say, too, before I hand it over to you to talk about graphics, that this game is really well put together graphically for a PS1 game because uh, PS1 is sometimes known for its warping textures. So if you look at video or if you've played like the original Tomb Raider is a really good example of the warping textures that kind of look like they're moving when they're really not and just rendering in weird ways as you play the game. I felt like this game was really tight in that aspect. I didn't see any warping. I didn't see any weird textures. I think all the color was really well done. It's a very colorful game and just very pleasing to the eye, if I do say so. So that's where I'm at with the graphics, Rich. What about you? 
yeah, just to bounce off what you said, I thought the graphics of this game were really, really good. I mentioned before, I really liked the sprite work and the talk bubbles that they used in this game. They were fantastic. The puppets all looked great for this generation of game, and even the character looked pretty good. I've seen better sprites in other games, but it, it wasn't bad. The travel system in this game, which you mentioned before, I wasn't a huge fan of it. I feel like there were times in the game where it would tell me to go someplace and I really wouldn't have a good idea of where that location was because it would mention a specific location, but unless it was a new place that opened up on the map, I wouldn't know exactly what place that was. And it took a little experimenting from time to time, but it, it wasn't bad, but it was a little confusing. Yeah. As far as the town was concerned, this is funny, man, but I did not know that you could go back to the goondocks and that there was a town or any vendors or anything in that area. So for the entire time, I thought the game was only one town and one shop. And for an RPG, it's a little lame. Well, even two is kind of lame. Your point still stands, even though you didn't know about the other one. Absolutely. Yeah, there just weren't a lot of NPCs to talk to, but I will say that when you do get to talk to the NPCs throughout the game, the dialogue does change, which is nice. It's not something that you have to do, but, you know, it gives the game a little color. As far as the combat screens were concerned, there were a lot of maps that were reused. There were areas that you had to go back to, and of course those maps would stay the same. But I did notice that in some places, in different chapters where you'd go to different areas, it would be the same map. It just might be in a different color. So it was a little disappointing to have reused maps. And in a lot of tactical RPGs, there are strategies that you have to use due to terrain. You know, there may be different types of terrain that slow you down. There may be a lot of obstacles and things like that that you have to work around. Now, those things did exist in this game, but there weren't a lot of obstacles. And a lot of times, you know, magic can definitely go around obstacles. However, I will say that there's some magic that was restricted to being on like certain line segments and it wasn't just a spread of AOE. Yeah. I thought that was clever in the game and I did like that aspect of it. Once again, it gave the game a little bit of color and a little bit of character. The isometric view, I liked it in the combat system, but I hated it when I was in the towns because they would put doors on different sides of the building. So you had to use <laughs> shoulder buttons to find those doors. Yeah. But I will say that the town is so small that once you've been to it three or four times, you understand where everything's at and there's not a lot of stuff there. So it's really not a big deal. I've already mentioned the magic, the graphics, especially after you hit level 30 is amazing. And one thing that we really haven't talked about are the cutscenes in this game. I think they are phenomenal. Yeah. Love all the character dialogue boxes. One of the things that we didn't mention when we were talking about the cover, man, that Japanese cover looks so damn good. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a Tales game. You know, it has that type of animation. It's beautiful. It reminds me of the uh, Tales of Destiny 2 cover on the PS1. Yeah, definitely. Why they didn't do that in the U.S., such a simple decision just to keep that same cover would have sold so many more of these games. I think not only that, but I think it would be a sought after and perhaps valuable title if they had done that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I want to touch on the cutscenes. We should mention what they are. So they're actually just anime still frames. 
and they cycle through as the dialogue goes on. And I should say there are some character sprite animation in-game cutscenes, but there are also these slides of anime, single frames, not animated, but they are gorgeously done and they really characterize, you know, everybody who's in the game. And I want to mention before we forget, there's a really good anime intro at the title screen if you let it play. And uh, uh, Stephen Disposed Hero mentioned that he liked the music so much in that anime sequence that most of the time when he would boot up the game, he would let the whole thing play through because he liked the music so much. Well, Stephen, I could see you maybe doing a guitar cover of that. Yeah, that would be cool. Oh, it has like, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot, buddy. <laughs> it has like classical guitar in it. It sounds awesome. Well, you want to get into the music? Because I think this is uh, another strong point of the game. Sure thing. So I don't know what I could say about the music to describe it, because it's really mostly what you would expect from a game like this. When you go into battle, there's like a marching dum 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 like battle theme. And when you're in a menu, there's a very tranquil and peaceful theme. So all the music is kind of appropriate for what it is, but I just want to say that it's really good. Like, it's really well done. I really loved the menu music. It's kind of hard to describe. You know, a lot of times we just say, yeah, the music was fine, serviceable, whatever. I would say the music in this game was typical, but it was very good. What do you think? I think the word just came out of your mouth. I have the word serviceable written down. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, I wasn't overly impressed by it. I think it was above average for sure. But, you know, it wasn't anything that blew me away. Not something that I would ever consider buying on vinyl or anything like that. But it was well done. I don't have any high accolades for it, but I also don't have any complaints, you know? That's fair enough. Let's move on then. <laughs> <laughs> so we're actually at the point where we would be making our final thoughts. But one thing I wanted to talk about, what did you think of the boss battles? I know you posted about the final boss, and I wanted to comment on one of the bosses in Chapter 9. So let's get into that really briefly. The game starts with a boss at the end of each chapter. Now, these bosses aren't what you would normally think about as a boss. They're just a normal sprite that has more hit points or more magic than some of the other characters that you would typically battle. It's really not until later in the game, chapter 9 and 10, where you actually face some of the bosses and some of the characters that you have been introduced to in some of the cutscenes. So I thought that was an interesting choice. However, I did enjoy facing off against the characters that were in the cutscenes, and especially the battle at the end of Chapter 9 I found more fascinating than the final boss encounter. Yeah, I agree. Chapter 9 is really a marathon. I think you have to do 11 or 12 battles. If I can't remember the exact number, but it's by far the most amount of battles in a chapter. And like three or four of them are boss battles. There was one in particular that kind of got me. Even when I was on my new game plus, I was level 99 and maxed the hell out on every single character. One of the boss battles has basically three characters who team up together. It's Garland, Lolita, and Jarrus. And I forget if it's Garland or Jarrus, one of the male characters, the green guy. 
you cannot hit him with physical attacks and mm-hmm. the uh, magic attacks don't do that much damage to him. So you really have to focus on taking him out because Lolita will heal him. This was actually by far the most challenging map in the whole game was trying to take out these three guys, even the second time I did it. So mm-hmm. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And then tell me about the final boss, because I know your son was helping you with it. <laughs> yeah, my four-year-old was in the room when I was taking on the final boss. But the boss battle at the end of Chapter 9, which we were talking about, the three characters, I thought that was the most interesting battle because you actually had to use a strategy. And my nine-year-old son was up here when I was doing that battle. I took out one of the characters rather quickly because I had a Pappet that was very, very strong in physical attack. And then there was another that I was hitting, I was taking down, but I couldn't take him down before the female character would heal. Mm -hmm. And so we had to come up with the strategy of we need to take this healer out first. You know, it did make you think and have to strategize. And I could see if you weren't a very high level, this battle would have been excessively difficult. Now, for us, it was definitely one of the longer battles in the game, but... It wasn't exceedingly hard, but it did make you have to consider your strategy and technique that you would use during that fight. Now, the final boss, I guess when I got to that final boss, I was just so overpowered. There are ads in that fight. We just kind of took them out first and saved the final boss for last. It just felt like a very simplified fight. Um, A little disappointing coming off of that battle at the end of Chapter 9, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think the final boss was very lacking in this game. You know, they didn't even give her a like second form, let alone a third form. She just is what she is, and you just beat her and that's it. Now, she does have a very cool death animation where she kind of evaporates off the screen, which is pretty <laughs> awesome. But yeah. yeah, the final boss was a little bit disappointing, even to me. All right, well, I think... We can get into our final thoughts here. I do have a final thought from Mr. Stubbs that I'd like to read. Awesome. All right. So Stubbs said, responding to me saying I beat the game twice, he said, once was definitely enough for me, LOL. I won't spoil anything while others continue to wrap this game up. Eternal Eyes wasn't a good game or a bad game, in my opinion. It was just very much okay. I like the idea of leveling up and evolving your puppets, and that death results in the loss of evolutions and abilities learned, but not levels. It kind of creates an incentive to be somewhat strategic when entering battles. However, the evolution system can be very confusing, and I feel like if we didn't have a guide at our disposal, this game would have been very frustrating and possibly unfinishable. The combat sequences were fine, Early on, when you have less evolved puppets, the battles can drag as you have to fight enemies one by one, but become too easy once you've leveled your puppets to use multi-target spells. I also found the leveling system to be too simple. Each level between 1 to 99 only requires 100 XP, making it very easy to level up fast, especially nearing the end game when you have an arsenal of OP puppets. The quick level up system also made healing items obsolete. More often than not, if I had a party member low on health, I would just attack with them and they'd level up and replenish their HP and MP. The story was fine as well. 
albeit a little too tropish, i.e. an ancient evil once thought defeated has returned and an unlikely hero and his allies <laughs> must stop that evil and save the world. And the character dialogue was good enough and kept everything cohesive. Graphically, the game looked good for a PS1 title. I did notice some screen tearing at times, but that may be due to using a modern television. Regardless, it was never bad enough where it caused issue. Overall, I don't think this game will be one that I replay often, but I may try to see if it can be beaten without fully level puppets that have been randomly evolved. So those are Stubbs's final thoughts. And uh, he, as usual, was one that kind of dove into the game pretty early. And he was very helpful in my playthrough, like I said, because he kind of tried to guide me through the evolution process. So I really <laughs> wanted to read his final thoughts since he took the time. And all valid points. He wasn't, as you yeah. could, as you just heard, not super high on the game. But again, all his criticisms are pretty valid. I wouldn't argue with anything there, uh, except the technical issues. I did note, because I wanted to know what did he play the game on, that he saw screen tearing. And he used original hardware, so using a PlayStation 1 on a modern TV might have led to that. I mm-hmm. played the game original disc, but I used a PS3, and the game looked perfect. So I just want to throw that out there. And I played the game on original hardware, but I used a CRT TV, and I didn't have any issues. It looked fantastic. Awesome. All right, well, let's get into our final thoughts. Rich, would you mind going first? Absolutely. Be glad to. So I liked this game. I thought it was a good game. I wouldn't call it a great game, but it's not the type of game that deserves the shit it gets. However, I understand why it gets the shit it gets, if that makes sense. Yeah. The whole aspect of the towns and the travel system, I think, could have been done much better, and it would have felt more like an RPG to me. I definitely think this game could have been better had it been on two discs instead of one. I think that they could have added more stuff to it. And I feel like the one disc was a bit of a limitation on what they can do. However, I'll say that what they got out of one disc is hella impressive. I feel like a game like Vandal Hearts did so many things so much better. Vandal Hearts had counters, which I felt like this game was sorely missing. The maps in Vandal Hearts were better. There was this ability to search for items. The retractable movement was awesome in Vandal Hearts, which I think this game is sorely missing. The blood geysers from Vandal Hearts, of course. I mean, just (laughs) an incredible animation uh, that I completely fell in love with. And of course... The artwork on the cover, as I mentioned before, I cannot understand why they did not put the Japanese artwork on here. When I say that the game is not a great game, but a very good game, that is a compliment, and that's not a knock on the game. What I like about the game the most is it has this evolution system that is very deep, and it really beckons multiple playthroughs because... Really, it's all based on chance and the ability to figure this out. I do like that New Game Plus option, and I do think they give you enough blank puppets to where you can go back and try different things, and you can reset them. So there is that option. However, one of the issues with the game is that it really doesn't pick up until after Chapter 4. 
And that's when the magic becomes really interesting. It's when the evolutions and the builds become so much more interesting. And for that reason, I feel like a lot of people picked up this game. They played it for a few chapters. They thought, eh, it's kind of just average. And then they put it down. And I feel like to really appreciate this game, you have to go up and beyond chapter four and chapter five because that's when the game really shines. And I think that's when the game really, really gets good. But I think all the negative reviews that you see of this game are people who have not completely played through the game and had the full experience that the developers intended. And it's a real shame that those people who are reviewing this game didn't give it that much of a chance. I would say if you like strategy RPGs, it's a very, very affordable game at around 10 to 15 bucks. And you should definitely add it to your collection and give it a go. It's definitely worth playing. It's not going to blow you away like some of the other RPGs on the PS1 or the Super Nintendo that came out around that time. But it's a very, very good game. Very good. So, man, this is such a weird game to play and to talk about. It's an odd game in general because, as I said in the beginning, hard to find any history on the development of the game. If you do a Google search of Eternal Eyes or Eternal Eyes PS1 or whatever, the first thing that comes up is the giant bomb user review of this game, which is a very, very negative review. That In the sidebar of the Google search, the first thing you see is, skip this game, don't play it, it's bad, it's not as good as Final Fantasy Tactics. And I challenge you to look up, <laughs> this is really funny, if you look up the listing of reviews of this game that have text in them and then do a control F Final Fantasy Tactics, every single one compares this game to that game, which I don't think is fair and I think it's kind of lazy. Even RP Gamer, which I noted, they're the ones that noted that the game was $9.99 upon release, gave the game a 1 out of 5 and just totally trashed every single aspect of the game. You know, I've played games that are unplayable or so bad. I understand, like you're saying, and like Stubbs said, the criticisms of this game are completely valid. How many times did I say it was unbalanced? Like every element of this game is out of balance, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And yet somehow I just loved this game. And sometimes we play games that we know aren't very good or great or classics or whatever and we just love them also by the way really really good games can be unbalanced and i'll just give you one example the shield rod in castlevania symphony of the night which i also loved because i love games that are broken in that way and I think that's why I had the reaction I did when I used the BW Papet and wiped out the whole map, surprising the hell out of me. But I just loved it because I said, oh, yeah, bring it on, baby. This is <laughs> this is going to be good, you know? Yep. So, man, this is so weird. Like, what's even weirder, I own this game, but I have the disc and the manual, but not the case. Again, I don't know where I got this game or why, why it's in my collection and why I only have the disc and the manual. So I'm watching on eBay two different listings. One is for the Japanese version of the game, which would cost me a total of $42 to get a complete Japanese copy of the game. Or I could buy the tray insert of the copy that I have and complete my North American copy for about six bucks. 
So I'm actually on the fence, but the point is I want this game on my shelf because I think it has earned a spot in my permanent collection on my shelf because I just love it so much. And I think my main takeaway, and I've always felt this way, but it always bears repeating, it is okay to love a game that everybody hates. And I love this game. Now, do I recommend it to people? Maybe not. If you think Final Fantasy Tactics, Tactics Ogre is all good enough for you, that's fine. You're probably not going to like this game because it's bare bones. It's probably too easy for you. It might even be too cutesy. But those are all the things I latched onto in this game. We didn't even really go deep into the puppets designs themselves. They're so varied and unique and creative there's ones that are like this jack-o'-lantern pumpkin dude that walks around. There's ones that look like a genie. There's one that's like this flaming pony thing that fly around. Just so much creativity and cuteness and awesomeness in the designs there. So this game scratched a lot of itches that I didn't know I had. I just enjoyed my time with it so much. Like I said, I, I beat this game, then I went and beat our April game Transistor, and then I came back and beat Eternalize again because that's how much I liked it. So, yeah, to me this game was amazing, but I totally understand why people don't like it. I just wish that when you Googled Eternalize PS1, there was more of a fair first impression than just seeing a bunch of bad reviews. That's what kind of breaks my heart. Yeah, I agree. I think this game is fantastic. After that chapter five portion of the game, I think it really opens up and becomes a fantastic strategy RPG. But I do think people sell it short because they don't play it all the way through, which is what's nice about what we do is that we're able to play the entire game and give it an accurate review, which I don't think a lot of those reviews online are very accurate at all. Agreed. All right. Well, speaking of playing entire games... I'll let you know what we're playing in April, which I already said is Transistor. This is Supergiant Games' second title. Now, both of us have played Bastion. And what's interesting, I didn't really love Bastion, but you said that you liked it a lot. And that's why we're playing Transistor. Now, I've already beat Transistor. And I'll hold my thoughts for next month, but I will say uh, recommend that people jump in and join this playthrough with us, even if they weren't too high on Bastion, which most people were, so I'm not worried about that. But yeah, Transistor, really cool game. So what are we playing in May? Well, I got to say, Sean, I'm really excited for what we're playing in May. (laughs) I'm so happy to share this game with everyone. It's a game that I played a few years ago and I listed as my game of the year. I just picked it up on the Switch, as I mentioned in my pickups, and that game is Axiom Verge. If you are in any way a fan of the Metroid or Castlevania, Metroidvania-like titles, you have to play Axiom Verge. The story of the game is very mysterious and cool, and the gameplay is so much fun. I am such a fan of this game. I can't hide it because I've already said on the show that I love this game, so I'm just excited (laughs) to share this with everyone. And like we said, this year we planned on playing more retro games. Yeah, This is a modern game, but it is a retro title in actuality. The guy who did this game, designed the game, he did all the music. It's a one-man show, and for one person to 
do all of this in a game. It's a very, very exciting experience, and I cannot wait to hear what our participants think about this game. On top of that, this spring, Axiom Verge 2 is supposed to be released, which is supposed to be a prequel to this game. So I am so excited about that. I'm so ready to jump back into the story and refresh my memory in anticipation of playing the second game. And uh, yeah, I would definitely tell people to look on YouTube. Thomas Happ has already put up a little bit of gameplay for Axiom Verge 2. So if it's a game that you've already played, it's something very, very exciting to see. Yeah, and I will say I at first was going to play this game on my Vita, but when I realized how cool the graphics were and how awesome the music was, I decided to play it on a big screen, which is weird because <laughs> you won't often see me putting down my Vita when I have an opportunity <laughs> to play it. So I actually I got through the first level on the Wii U, and I would recommend... The Wii U version is a really good version because you have the map always on the gamepad, which makes exploration a little bit easier to handle for someone like me who doesn't have a lot of experience with this type of game. And I would also say, you mentioned that it's kind of like Metroid, kind of like Castlevania. It is, but what they added that I really love, the running gun elements. So it's almost yes. like a Contravania, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, some fun boss battles, too. So I, I think this game has something for everyone. that we will wrap up another episode thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to all of our participants in april we're playing a different kind of strategy title 
Supergiant Games' second title, Transistor, is available on many modern consoles, mobile devices, and computers. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join this playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blamage. Here we go. This is the final boss. This is the final boss, Dad. It says, last boss. Is that what it says? Yeah. It's the final boss. Oh, those guys, those guys with one eyes are pretty strong, Dad. Remember when you fight a boss of them? Mm-hmm. The green ones? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's two. Yeah. So close it's your turn. So can you do the crocodile? The crocodile? What's the crocodile? Um that crocodile that comes that comes at you. And like and it like eats the ground. Okay. I did like 101 damage. That's not bad, Dad. <laughs> You're exactly right. It did exactly 101 damage. Okay, what? It says cats upgraded to 45. I think the cats upgraded to. I think the, I think the one in the middle is the final boss, Dad. Oh yes, this is the crocodile. Yeah. See that crocodile with teeth? See that teeth? Yeah. And it comes out of the granite. Oh, that? Ooh, did not do a lot of damage there. It did a little, it did a little bit. She just got hit a What's this bell? What's this bell, Dad? Oh, it's the sword. Dad, can you do the ice that's falling? The ice spell? Yeah, I'm trying to do that. Let's see. I gotta get in here and get some uh, physical attacks in. You want a straight line? That last, remember the middle, but that I can see. Daddy, can you do the falling eyes after this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll do that in just a minute, okay? We gotta do some more physical damage. Oh, how much damage did I do? Not that much damage to the one in the middle. 
Uh oh. Bad guys. It's bad guy's turn. Oh. I didn't know that guy was dead. Did you know that guy was dead? Let's see. Bye. Yeah, 142. That's okay. He's healing, isn't he? Yeah, he healed that griffin. So we're gonna have to take out these green guys first with some physical damage. Right? Then we'll have to take out the one in the middle. And then those guys that heal each other. You did the purple guys that heal each other, okay, Dad? Okay. There's a ton of Ooh, 431 for the hit. That's a big hit. Look, I took out one of the green guys. Oh, yeah, you did. Mm-hmm. How much damage did it do, Dad? 431. That's a big hit. That's the biggest. That can, like, one-shot everything, Dad. Can you take it out my sandwich again? Mm-hmm. I'll try. Once we take these healers out, we're going to be able to do some good stuff here. Did you know that boss can heal people too? I, think uh, the boss... I don't know. We'll see. I think this... I think that... I think... I think that... Wait, you could fight him? Woo! 325. That's Another big hit. That's not bad, Dad. Nope, that is not bad. Let's do a magic here. I think we can maybe take out that second green one. I think it'll do enough damage. Let me do the ice? Yeah, that's falling. Alright, here we go. Falling ice. Glacius. What's your favorite spell? Um, a lot of spells. Mm -hmm. A lot of spells does a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. But what's your favorite Wait, one? Maybe you're going to take out everything. The ice in the water and the crocodile. The crocodile. I think there's like one more spell that I like. Oh. I think it's the water. Didn't quite get him. I think. Uh oh. Did it like. Ah, he healed. Wait, he didn't heal it. He healed himself. Yep, eight hundred and one. Can you take out? Can you take out? Can you take out? Can you take out? Can you take out the guy white? Oh, yeah. that's like a kind of a hundred damage. Did you not know what it is? Who's gonna die? Yeah, we're okay. And none of you guys died. No, nobody's dead yet. Uh, I'm just 
check everybody's energy. I think everybody's still pretty good. He didn't take any damage. Night, all night did not take any damage. Well, he doesn't take any damage. Maybe he'll get a big hit right here. Ooh, 432. That's big. Oh, got him. All right, all the green ones are gone. Those heroes are gone. There's only two, I mean, three more to take on. Yeah. Everybody's fine, right? What should we do now? Take out these griffins? You think? Yeah. Let's take out the griffins. And then we'll take out the final boss. Alright. Sounds like a good plan. Wait, where's the girl? Is the girl just dead? There's a griffin at 104. Let's go ahead and take that guy out. Alright. 305. Let's really hit. Okay. I want to shot him. I want to Wait. Let's run. Can you do a spell now? Yeah, we'll do a spell. Which one do you want to do? I think it would take out. Oh, he's teleported in time. Yeah, teleported. Let's see. Have <sighs> you never heard of this attack? Do another ice spell. Wait, another ice? Yeah. What is this? It's like an ice tornado, isn't it? Oh, yeah. What? Mm. Oh, do a lot of damage. It did 100 to that Gwyndon, though. Yeah. Griffin, yep. Yeah. It did. Griffin. Yeah. The Griffin got 100 damage. Which one do you want to do? Yeah. Uh, get me all that thing. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. He's still fine. Leveled up and got all my energy. Uh oh. Ooh. Yeah, it's gonna hit both of my. Ooh, ooh, didn't do a lot of magic damage at all. Oh, yeah, I did it. Yeah. That magic is so good. Well, I've got good magic defense. So that's... Yeah, wait, you upgraded your magic? Did I quit him? I quit him down there. I'm gonna take this griffin out. It's not a Grinnin, it's a Griffin. Griffin is almost dead. Griffin still has a lot of health. This attack. What do you think? Can you check out how much health the Grin? He's got 209. And that was a 406 attack, so we got him, right? Oh, yes, we got him. Alright, just the final boss left. It's a boss what have you got to do now? I never heard of an ice tornado. Now, have you never heard of the ice tornado that we just saw? Yep. Alright, okay. let's do some physical damage here to the final boss. 
181, that's not bad. Take it. Getting some level up still, so that's good. Well, you got how much our That fills our energy all the way back up. It's one thing I do like about this game. I think this is like the final boss. Yeah, this is the final boss, Dad. Is it? Yeah. Because I heard of this. I heard of that is the final boss. I think this is gonna kill it. Nah, I don't think so. But maybe it'll do a little physical damage, not just magic. Uh, Forty. That's not good. But I can't get closer yet. So. It's a little bit good. It's, it's a not terrible, bit. but there's only one bad dude. It's weak. It did four damage. <laughs> this is so weak attacks. They have weak attacks and we have strong attacks. That's right. Can, the boss can't heal anybody. Boss is not healing anybody. Yeah. Which part do you want to do? Spell is just that. I'll do the ice. It's not going to be great, but. I think it's going to do nothing. Nah, I don't think so. I think that the final boss has some really good magic resistance. So, I don't I think, think it's... I think it dies. I think it dies in just two more. Two more hits? I think he's also gonna one-shot it. Nah, it's not gonna one-shot it. One-shot it. See? How much? 45. It doesn't do a lot of damage because it's got really oh. good magic I resistance. Think just, I think it's just like five more. I think it's just five more damage. Can you see how much health she has? Can you see how much health that... 336 is what the boss has left. Alright, I'm gonna attack her from behind. Need some room. Ooh, 182. I'm getting there. Almost there. Can you see how much health she has now? Uh-huh. Just a sec. How much health does she have? We'll see. This might do it here. She's got 154. So we gotta get more than 154 hit right here. Woo! 433! Oh, big hit. Looks like it. We'll see. This can't be true. I've been defeated twice. She's been defeated twice? Mm-hmm. I think she's dead. I think she won the entire game, Dad. 